Okay, so today's episode of Something to Wrestle is brought to you by StarCast on Fight. What are you waiting for? This is all anybody's talking about. Not only do you get the roast of Ric Flair, are you kidding me? But you get tons of other great panels like Cody and the Young Bucks sitting down to talk about how in the world all elite wrestling came to be a thing. Of course, it's the last live something to wrestle. What about Tony Schiavone sitting down with Sting? What about Sean Moody sitting down with Bret Hart? Oh, and Tom McGee's there. Never know what they might be talking about. We just announced the Booker T show. We've got a Taz show. It's nearly two dozen shows at Caesars, and you can enjoy them all right now, live on demand in glorious HD for the low, low price of 59 bucks. Just go to starcastonfight.com and you'll pick it up. There's two shows going almost all weekend across four days. So if you don't like what's on one stage, just flip over to the other stage. And if you can join us in person, why wouldn't you? It is a who's who of professional wrestling and you don't want to miss it. It's starcast.com or starcastonfight.com. And don't forget there's two R's in Starcast, just like Starcade and Fight is F-I-T-E. Starcastonfight.com. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib? No, yeah, but there's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. You, Bruce. I love you. Double cheeseburger. Double cheese. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, and this week, we'd like to bring you the best of <laughs> Conrad. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, we wanted to be true to our commitment that we were going to deliver the best possible sound quality. Bruce is back in his home studio this week, as am I. So no curveball this week. We were hoping to bring you JBL last week. Uh, the schedule just didn't work itself out. So a little help from our friends, Matt Coon put together a best of featuring your favorite wrestler and Tony's triple H and, uh, Tony Schiavone basically begged for a job and shit on you for two hours. Your thoughts. Well, that's kind of Tony Schiavone's life. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> what he does, isn't it? Uh, Tony wakes up in the morning and likes to try and take the shit on me because, well, he has nothing else to do with his life in general and uh, beg for jobs. So that's kind of what he does. He's in his natural habitat, but we got a lot of good feedback. It's our first best of since Houston was in a flood. Uh, outside of that, we've been able to deliver brand new content to you for every week for nearly three years now. So we're pretty proud of that. Uh, and we are back in the saddle again this week with the one and only JBL. And, uh, we've been, I have wanted to talk about this for a long time, uh, but before we get started, if you've ever stopped at a railway crossing and the signals are flashing and you don't see the train, or it looks like it's moving slow and you're thinking maybe you could get across the tracks before the train comes. Think about this in 2018 alone, 270 people were killed at railroad crossings, 270 stop trains. Can't, and we're not going to stop the train here. We're going to keep it going 
for Mr. John Bradshaw Layfield. Of course, in real life, he's John Charles Layfield, born November 29th, 1966 in Sweetwater, Texas, which the only time I've ever even heard of Sweetwater, Texas was Barry Windham. Uh, kind of ironic that later that would become one of his tag team partners with the new blackjacks. Uh, but you've known John a long time. I guess we should just tell everybody in the air of, or in the interest of full disclosure, uh, you and I've become uh, pretty good friends with John. You much longer than I, you guys have been in business for a long time and, uh, worked together and started some new businesses together and everything in between. When did you first meet John? I met John the first time actually face to face when he came into Bethlehem, Pennsylvania for a tryout and he had been working in Germany coming into the States and he was looking for a job and had called and said, why don't you come on in when you're coming into the States and stop by a television taping and let's take a look at you. I'd like to look to meet you. We brought him in and the rest as they say is his story. Uh, when John was in high school, he got into football and once he got into college, he not only played at Abilene Christian university, but also coached at Trinity Valley community college. And it's a part of JBL's story that I don't think gets talked about a lot. Uh, at Abilene, he was a two-year starter on the offensive line and named first team all Lone Star Conference as a junior and senior. Then he entered the NFL draft. He didn't get drafted, but he did sign with the Los Angeles Raiders as an undrafted free agent, and he got released before the 1990 season started. Uh, after the NFL dream didn't work out, he went to the world league of American football and he started 10 games in 1991 for the San Antonio Riders. and the current Dallas Cowboy coach, Jason Garrett was actually the quarterback of that team. And from there, he decides to hang up the cleats and get into pro wrestling. So football was certainly his first love. Do you ever have a conversation with John about why football didn't work out? Cause he wasn't any good. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, his knees, man. He, his knee was bad. I think he had to have a surgery early on. He loved football and John had played football his whole life. His dream was to be a professional football player, but his knees just weren't holding up. And coaches were like, John, you know, it's going to be a career of knee surgeries and not being able to hold up. So John went and looked for a different profession. And he found professional wrestling, which is sort of interesting. And I think he wound up actually being trained by, well, he's got a pretty famous trainer and I wouldn't have put the, I wouldn't have connected the dots with him being from Texas. Tell everybody about it. Well, his first trainer was actually Brad Rankins and Brad Rankins, uh, Olympic trainer and one of the toughest son of bitches you'd ever want to meet on the face of the earth. And Brad trained guys up in Minnesota. Brad was one of those just real tough guys under the tutelage of Vern Gagne. When John started in the business, he didn't know where else to go. And someone told him, Hey, Brad Rangans. And he went up and, uh, learned from Brad and then got thrown from the pan to wait, no, from the, whatever, into the into the pan pretty damn quick. He's thrown right into the fire. I think fire. There you go. So uh, after training, he starts uh, wrestling with the GWF global wrestling federation, which we've talked about here on the show available now in the archives at something to wrestle.com. And at the time global is working out of the sportatorium in Dallas, which is obviously a world famous arena for world-class championship wrestling. And 
John actually recently posted a video of himself standing out in front of where the sportatorium used to be. Did you ever, when you were doing global stuff, was that at the sportatorium as well? Absolutely. And it was, uh, just as friggin' hot and disgusting then as it was when John started. He starts working as John Hawk. And we talked about Barry Windham earlier. Uh, he is the storyline cousin of Barry's here, similar to how Ric Flair, I guess, was the storyline cousin of the Andersons in the Crockett promotion. He goes on to win the tag titles with Bobby Duncan Jr. and Black Bart, respectively. And then he hits the Indies for a couple of years and he wrestles everywhere from Japan, Mexico, Germany, Austria. And uh, eventually he starts to get some looks. Uh, JBL joined the NWA in 1994 and defeated. Well, b- the- b- before you before you go on, I hate to interrupt you, Conrad, but there's a there's a very good untold story about John's first couple weeks in the wrestling business in the GWF because they had a substitution and and they needed someone in the main event to work with a gentleman by the name of I believe it was Rod Price at the time, and Rod went out and they said, listen, if the kids the shits just take it home pretty quick and, and beat him. But if you can get some time out of get some time out of it. So John went out and he worked the match and John was able to follow Rod price through this match. And they had a decent match for a guy who had only been working for two weeks. Well, when John got back, there was someone there that was going to Japan and booking Japan and said, Hey kid, you ever been to Japan? Do you want to go to Japan? And John said, well, hell yeah, I do, sir. And they booked him on a tour almost immediately to go to Japan, unknown. While John's there, he's on tour with Bob Orton Jr., who Bob looks at him and and John's getting the shit kicked out of him by the Japanese taking advantage of him. And the Japanese talent, you know, obviously they don't speak English. John doesn't speak Japanese, so it's a tough communication situation there but bob orton john's favorite story is bob orton looks at him and says how long you been wrestling there kid john says two weeks he says no not how long you been on tour how long you been wrestling he says two weeks and orton was just god damn how the hell you get over here in two weeks son and he had two weeks in the business and john had himself a japanese tour from the sportatorium in dallas unbelievable there's a famous story that we'll let John tell one day, maybe on a bonus episode about one of his, uh, situations he had in Mexico too, which is kind of fun with another wrestling personality that people would recognize. Uh, anyway, he joins the NWA briefly in 1994 and defeats the legendary Kevin Von Erich in January 94 to win the NWA North American title later losing it to Greg Valentine. But let's fast forward. 1996, he finally makes his way to the WWF. Meltzer was reporting at the beginning of January 96. John Hawk got a tryout with Uncle Zeb, parentheses Dutch Mantel, as manager and put over Savio Vega. Hawk got good heel heat for a guy who had never appeared on television. Now, I guess we should mention here, John definitely has the look here. He's a tall dude, big guy, got the long hair. Vince had to be enamored with him just based on size and presentation alone. Well, they definitely loved the size. And John was in his own way. John was a huge fan growing up of Stan Hansen. So John tried to emulate Stan Hansen as much as he possibly could and did the, and 
the hook em horn sign and all the same shit through the lariat, same whole nine yards. So John was coming in. I think he was trying to emulate Stan so much that it even did come to Vince's attention that, you know, God damn it. I, I don't want Stan Hansen. I want this big burly Texan, but he was big. He was full of personality. He could move and he just was impressive looking. So yeah, his first impression was a good one. Who came up with the name Justin Hawk Bradshaw? Because that's the way he debuted on TV at the end of January. He got a win over Bob Holly in his first match on raw, but Justin Hawk Bradshaw, where does that come from? Well, it was John Hawk before. So we, we took the first part of it and I think actually I came up with it and Bradshaw just sounded like a, I don't know. Sounded like a tough Texas name, Bradshaw. There was, okay. A friend of mine, uh, named Buddy Sullivan. He worked at a plant, the, the power plant here in town. And every time that I would call out to the plant to catch buddy, there was a guy by the name of Bradshaw that answered the phone and he would, you would call out there and he'd go Bradshaw. And that's just what I thought of when I looked at John Layfield was Bradshaw because <laughs> he had a big mouth, big loud Texan. And that was a name that just popped out of my head. Just sounded Texan to me. The name John Hawk, his original independent name. Do you think there is an influence from the 1987 movie over the top where Sylvester Stallone played Lincoln Hawk? I wouldn't be surprised at all. Bradshaw kind of looked like a Hawk. Uh, the old nasty bird with good eyesight. Lots of rumor and innuendo about John that we're going to get into, but when he first comes into the room or into the scene and he's in the locker room, uh, he's been in a bunch of locker rooms for football and now all over the country. Does he fit in pretty well? Yeah. As far as I remember, he fit in real well. He just was one of the boys. No, no real issues. Just another guy joining the tour. I guess we should mention the early incarnation of this gimmick that he's doing after he would win a match, he would brand the JB symbol on him, which is kind of fun. Um, he also has been on record as saying, I didn't think I'd be there very long. I really thought I'd be there two or three years. That's about all people were around for at that time. They, a lot of people would come in and leave a lot. And I figured I'd just be there two or three years. And then I'd find my way back to Japan maybe go back to college, even be a coach somewhere. But I never imagined I'd be there 15 years or whatever it was. That was completely unexpected to be there that long. I'm fascinated by the sentence. I thought I'd be there two or three years. And, and he's clear that that was at least from his perception, like the average lifespan of a wrestler in the WWF. And we see these stats, like the average life of a running back in the NFL, not his, his, his actual life, but you know, his run, his career. And it's a finite amount of time. Did you ever perceive the WWF, especially in this era, we'll call it mid nineties as being a place you come for two or three years and then move on down the road. Traditionally, it was always that way, especially with the heels. They would come in, bring a top heel in, put them on top, take them around the horn. Uh, they'd beat Jay Strongbow one time. Then they would go around the loop with Bruno then they'd go back around the loop with uh, Jay Strongbow. Strongbow would get his win back, and then you'd go one more time around the loop, putting over the, the mid-card 
baby faces and then you'd be gone. And usually that would last two, three years, three years if you could milk some extra matches with Bruno in there. So um, for a heel, yeah, that was a normal life expectancy. Things were changing though, but a three-year run would, would have been a hell of a run back in the day. I guess we should mention he's a part of the 96 King of the ring. He loses to Jake Roberts in the first round superstars. And it is sort of interesting to me that here's this big young guy trying to get over and having Jake Roberts beat him when Jake Roberts is really on the senior tour at this point, did you just not see a big upside in him or were you just really, really more focused on telling the Jake story? At that point, we were more focused on telling the Jake story and John was there paying his dues and we were really still trying to figure out what the hell we had at that point. So John was new and Jake, we had a story for on August 19th. He does a dark match in Wheeling, West Virginia on raw where the stalker would be Justin Bradshaw in a battle of future partners and Sweetwater, Texas residents. Of course, the stalker is Barry Windham. Uh, yeah, the stalker. Goddamn right. The stalker. Yeah. He stalks you. Camouflage, you can't see him. Oh God, he's a stalker. You look in that. You look down in that in the in the in the pond. Are you looking at him or is he looking at you? Okay, stalker. Okay. Uh, after that, he starts working the house show loop with Zeb, and he's losing to the Bushwhackers in most matches. This is where we are. Uh, he makes his pay per view debut at Mind Games, which is a phenomenal show with an incredible main event, September twenty second, nineteen ninety six, in Philadelphia. He's going to take on Savio Vega in a Caribbean strap match. Where was the Caribbean strap match invented, Bruce? Caribbean. Uh, Vega. I think it was invent- invented. Well, I don't know the wrestling history the way you do. So thank Damn, you for Caribbean. clearing that up. All right. So here's the reason we're mentioning this in particular. They go seven minutes, nine seconds. Vega gets the win. It's a star and a quarter. But this is the match where something kind of interesting happened. And we've touched on this before. It's when ECW is really the story that we're trying to tell. Uh, Meltzer would even say the match itself was mainly a backdrop for the ECW angle. Sandman, Dreamer, and Paul Heyman were at ringside and Sandman threw his beer at Vega, smashes the beer can on his head and juiced, lit a cigarette while security led all three off. Off camera, but very noticeably to the live fans, Sandman, Dreamer, and Heyman were calling attention to themselves at ringside up to the point of the show and Heyman kept giving the finger to McMahon and McMahon would give him dirty looks back. A lot of people live thought this was all a shoot. And after the match, they did a faraway shot of the new razor and diesel attacking Vega in the locker room after the match. Um, that just f- gives you a frame of reference for where we are. We've got, Hey, it's real. It's ECW. Oh, look, fake razor and diesel. It's an interesting time in the WWF, but you're doing a work shoot angle here. And you've told us. Your conversation with Briscoe backstage where he was not smartened up and you were, and he was a little offended by that, but from a, the, the boys, you're talking to Savio Vega, you're talking to Justin Hawk Bradshaw. You got to lay out, Hey guys, here's what's going to happen. What did they know? What didn't they know? Oh, they, they didn't know shit. And I, I talked to Savio and I told Savio that I said, look, those guys are out there. They want you 
to pay attention to them. I don't give a fuck what happens. If anything happens, I don't give a fuck what happens. Do not, under any circumstances, let that big fucking cowboy loose from that Caribbean strap match, from that Caribbean strap. I said, you hold on to that big son of a bitch, and he is not to get involved in anything that could potentially happen out there because that's exactly what they fucking want. So I'm counting on you to be the professional and to keep him away. And if that fucking Sandman or something spits some goddamn beer in your face, then you fucking tell him to pull you out and you guys get over to the other side of the fucking ring. And Savio got it. He understood. And that was it. That was all I told him. So, um, I'm sure Savio smartened John up to, you know, Hey, big boy, they're doing something there and we'll just get on the other side of the ring. If anything happens, which is exactly what they did. But the, the worst was undertaker undertaker was pissed off because the guys in the back were ready to come out and stomp a hole in some ECW folks. It could have been ugly. After this, uh, Justin starts putting over stalker and Holly on the house show loops, uh, and it sort of fizzles out. And then in February of 97, we see Bradshaw repackaged and now he's teamed with Barry Windham to form the new blackjacks. Of course, the original blackjacks were Barry's father, blackjack Mulligan and your favorite blackjack Lanza. Where did this idea for the new blackjacks come from? And I got to tell you as a fan. I thought this was an awesome gimmick and awesome look, and I thought they could have done more than they did. Why didn't they? I did too. It it all started as most things do with, uh, with a comment. Jack Lanza was out somewhere and John was out. They were together and someone said to Jack Lanza, Oh, is that your son? So Lanza started calling John, that's ah, my son here. Barry's there, obviously his dad, Bobby Jack Mulligan. And it's like, hmm, now that was a hell of a team, the Blackjacks. And what if we did something with the Black, basically the Blackjacks ride again, but this time it's the kids, you know, and it's uh, Blackjack Wyndham and Blackjack Lanza. That that was the, that was the idea behind it from just a comment somebody made and Jack referring to Layfield as his son and hello son. So by God, they were working father and son and we decided to make it go. They did their hair black and did the same mustaches and everything. I thought it would have been huge. I really did. I thought they were a great tag team and should have done a lot more. So the idea if you had to pinpoint comes from you or it really came from Lanza, you know, telling the story and, and ribbon Bradshaw being his son. And we all heard of it and developed it from there. And both of the guys were up for it. No pushback from either. No. All right, cool. No, cut their hair, did their hair black, grew the mustaches out. No problem. Cause they were friends. Uh, Barry and John were friends in real life. They traveled together uh, on, on the road. So they, they were friends already. Well, what's interesting to me though, is you just look at the sheer size of these fucking guys. I mean, JBL is, is, is not a little dude, uh, especially back then, you know, he's probably 
what do you think? Six, six. Yeah. And, and Barry Windham himself, six, five, six, six. These are two legitimately big dudes. Uh, and now they've got a cool, badass looking gimmick that's sort of old school and they're going to be ass kickers. So what do you do? Uh, you put them on the loop with the Godwins and let the Godwins beat the fuck out of them. Yeah. <laughs> they're hog farmers, Conrad. <laughs> so, you ever met a hog farmer? I just, you know, I just remember them and I was like, oh man, these guys are awesome. These guys are going to be badasses. And it was even fun to play with, you know, their character as the, in the video game or whatever. And then those are the fucking pig farmers right away. Then doesn't go anywhere. Do you think Vince just didn't get it or is Russo getting some influence here and doesn't really dig what they're it doing? Was a, it was about the time that Russo was starting to get influence. Yes. But you know, everything does go back to Vince McMahon. And, and I think there was a lack of confidence. Uh, unfortunately, there was at times a lack of confidence in Barry And then there was the feeling that John was still a little green and needed to learn and and just needed to let me freestyle up. Is is there also a concern that God damn it. That's too Southern. That's wrestling. Nobody fucking cares about that shit because it does feel we've heard that there is like a, an anti Southern bias at times, whether it's Kevin Dunn or it's, or it's Vince or whoever, um, and maybe because it wasn't their original idea, maybe because blackjack was a bigger name in the mid Atlantic territory, whatever. Was there some sort of anti-Southern or we didn't create it. This isn't really ours. It's a rehash of an old gimmick. Nobody knows whatever. No, cause the, the blackjacks did huge business in New York. So Vince was very familiar with them and, and loved, loved Lanza. He just, I do think that the. The concept might have been a little too retro, but more than anything, it was Barry was hampered with injuries. John was green, and Russo didn't like Southerners. But other than that, ye fucking ha! Do you guys have yeah, a people? Do- people don't talk like that. Hey, Conrad, this was this was an actual quote one time that people don't talk like that in the real world. What yeehaw? With southern accent? Oh no, I don't, I don't say yeehaw, but I have a southern accent. You do? Yeah. That's fucked up. Hey, so let me ask when you're doing a repackage gimmick like this, somebody somewhere gives a ring to, you know, Barry's dad. And I mean, somebody calls Lanza and blackjack in real life. Right. And says, Hey, we're thinking about doing this with these guys. Right. Or does you just fuck it? We're doing it. No, we, we talked to Lanza about it and had Barry talk to his dad about it. Um, Jack was in, in no condition at the time. And I don't think he really wanted to have anything to do with it. So we did the vignettes with black Jack Lanza sitting around the campfire and talking about the glove and the claw and what it meant to be a black Jack and things of that nature. So there was talk for about a half a second of black Jack Lanza managing them. But Lanza was like, Nope, that ain't going to happen. My days in front of the camera are over. And he squashed that pretty quick. Survivor Series 97 has the new Black Jacks in it. Uh, they're going to be on the losing end with the uh, headbangers, Billy Gunn and Jesse James and the Godwins get the elimination win. It got a dud. And right after this, the Black Jacks would head to all Japan to compete in the real world tag league tournament. Uh, in their first match on November 15th, they lose to Kenta Kobashi and Johnny Ace. And the next day, 
the Blackjacks would get a win over Stan Hansen and Bobby Duncan Jr. Uh, and then they would uh, lose to Giant Kamala and uh, Izumita. Probably butchered that. Then they beat Hayabusa and Jinzei Shinzaki, who, of course, we know as Hakushi. And then they lost to Johnny Smith and Wolf Hawkfield. And then again, another losing effort to Gary Albright and Steve Williams. And then another loss to Omari and Honda and another loss to Misawa and Akiyama. And then another loss against Tao and Kawada. So talk to me about how you guys go about sending over one of your tag teams to all Japan to basically be enhancement talent. They wanted to go and it was, it was an opportunity to get them some work. We weren't using them a lot where we were. And there was this opportunity in those days, you know, you didn't have the internet, uh, as strong as it is now it was like, who was going to know there wasn't video floating around of everything. What was it going to hurt? And it was going to give them a rest from TV, um, on our side. So go get a payday, go work every night and get a payday. We didn't give a shit whether they were winning or losing as long as they got paid. That's interesting because it, it, this is still very much a time where wins and losses matter. You know, we're just a couple of days removed from the Montreal screw job and now they're over and nobody really cares. Uh, Wyndham is going to wind up injured a lot during this run. So eventually they're split up and this is going to leave Bradshaw to his own devices. He's going to come in at number eight in the Royal rumble of 98. He's eliminated by dude love before he can eliminate anybody. And then the next night on raw, they have Jeff Jarrett beat him. And Jeff Jarrett at the time is the NWA North American champion. And then it feels like there's a bit of a shift and we start to see a little bit of a push for Bradshaw. He's getting wins on all the house shows against Goldust, And he shows up at no way out in 1998, uh, where he's going to get uh, his first shot at a singles title. He's going to challenge Jeff Jarrett for the NWA North American title. And he actually gets a win by DQ though. And he's presented a little differently instead of blackjack Bradshaw or Justin Hawk Bradshaw. He's just called Bradshaw here. Uh, what'd you think of, uh, the repackaging and making him a single star? How does that come to be? Well, Vince thought that uh, obviously the, the tag team thing wasn't working out because of the various injuries that Barry had throughout the years. And he was looking at the age as well. And saw that Layfield had the upside. He was young. He was hungry. He said, God damn it. I can get this big bastard. And he was boisterous, loud mouth Texan. God damn it. You know how those people are Conrad. Um, so he's like, if I can get that guy to cut the promos, then we can make some money with him. And that was always the, the hindrance sometimes to get the personality that's in the locker room to come out in front of the camera and be able to deliver with the same passion that they have in the locker room. So that's what Vince was trying to do here with Bradshaw. He felt that he could come in and really do something with John here and make him a single and, and hopefully be able to push him because people could get behind that big goddamn son bitch. Well, they did WrestleMania 15 comes and we see Bradshaw involved in a tag team battle Royal. He's going to be teaming up with chains here. Of course they don't win. Uh, he finds himself getting wins over Barry Windham and a lot of the house shows in May and towards the end of May, he starts to form a strange alliance with Takamichi Noku and Taka's rivalry with Kai and Tai. 
And we also see Bradshaw try to teach Taka how to drive. Uh, where the fuck does this come from, Bruce? You ever seen Taka drive? Nope. Well, there you go. <laughs> Character building vignettes, and it was way more so than anything to kind of build Taka and to get people to enjoy Taka. Uh, Layfield and Taka had an interesting relationship just in general in the backstage area where Bradshaw would have fun with Taka and Taka was, would go back and forth with him. So took that relationship and tried to put it on camera. And of course you got to teach him how to drive first. That's the first thing. I think they drive on the wrong side of the road over there. Listen to you. Well, I do. Let's get to the no way out, or I'm sorry, over the edge pay-per-view, May 31st, 1998. We've got Dick to go, Men's Tao, and Shofunaki beating Bradshaw and Taka in a handicap match. And the partnership doesn't last long. Bradshaw finds himself working singles again. And let's fast forward. We've talked about this briefly before a long well, time ago. Go ahead. Okay. I got to give you a little sidebar here. I'm ready. You're, you're familiar with the Yakuza in Japan, right? I mean, I've never met any of them, but yes, I'm yes, you probably have, but you just don't know it. Well, as legend has it that when a Yakuza screws up that they get like one of their fingers taken or, or, or a joint. So you can tell someone who's in the Yakuza, if they don't have all their fingers or if they're like chopped off at a certain point, well, I can't believe I'm actually saying this out loud because you always ask for rib stories and just different things. So one day I convinced an entire locker room and <laughs> that Taka was in the Yakuza in Japan. And they said, there's no way because he's not missing any digits. I said, no, 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 no. Because he's a big star in Japan, they cut off his toes. So like, if you ever, you ever watch, man, when Taka goes in to take a shower, Taka takes his shoes off, he's got a couple toes missing and you would not believe how many times people would try. And of course I smartened Taka up to it. So Taka would sit over there in kayfabe and, and he would make sure he would look around before he'd take his socks off. And then he would, he would run in and he would drop a towel on his, on his feet. So no one could see it and shit. So I think there are some people out there still today that think that Taka Michinoku was in the Yakuza <laughs> and that because he was a star that they cut his toes off instead of his fingers. I love you for that. And, and Bradshaw kind of perpetuated that a little bit for me. <laughs> Cause I think they do Conrad. I'm just saying now, if you know, if you're a star and you're in the Yakuza, you can't take your fingers. Cause if you take your fingers, everybody's going to know, but if you take a toe, they ain't going to know. Just don't wear flip-flops. You're pretty proud of that one. Aren't you? I was because it was one of those that people would always look. <laughs> June 29th on raw. We see Bradshaw beat Mark Canterbury by points in the brawl for all tournament. And during this, Bradshaw starts to form a partnership with the legendary Terry Funk. Before we talk about Funk, talk to me about Brawl for All. Uh, what, what did Bradshaw think of this? He thought it was the stupidest shit he'd ever heard. But, you know, as the story goes, you know, Russo 
I created Brawl for All to shut Brad Char up. Um, so he I, he thought it was stupid, but he was happy to do it. He, he was one of the first people I called to do it and said, hell yeah, I'll do it, Mr. Pritchard. So he did. Got his ass knocked out, but he did it. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about uh, fully loaded 1998. We've got Farouk and too cold getting a win over Terry Funk and Bradshaw six minutes and 51 seconds. Uh, got a star and a quarter. We've covered this show in our archives, but how did this come to be Terry Funk and Bradshaw? This feels like something Bradshaw would have loved. Bradshaw did love it. And Terry loved it. Uh, Terry was looking at it and it was a way to prolong Terry's career by being in a tag team versus a single. And we had brought Terry in, you know, as Chainsaw Charlie originally to do the kind of one-off stuff with Mick Foley. Russo kept using him and figured since they're both from Texas, put them together. But Terry loved John and John loved Terry. I thought they could have done a lot more too. Again, it was to with same thing with Wyndham, man. I thought Wyndham was a legend, but here Terry Funk is a legend I think that he could have helped bring Bradshaw along for a while and then have the turn and really make Bradshaw because you would have felt sorry for Terry Funk. I, it just feels like something that, that he would have loved for sure. Uh, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about where we're going next. It's brawl for all and Bradshaw's going to beat Mark Merrow by points. Um, that's on August 10th. A week later, he beats draws and the semis by points. But a week later, August 24th, it all comes to an end. Bradshaw gets knocked out by Bart Gunn. You ever talked to Bradshaw about that? <laughs> yeah. Ah, you got knocked out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you? A lot. Uh, but no, you know, the only guy that didn't get knocked out by Bart was uh, Bob Holly and Butterbean. But. It was, we, we were everybody, I mean, good God, everybody was on John prior to the match. Like, okay, just, you know, try and fall on your back, John, when you get knocked out. Um, he hung in there. I mean, he, he fought him, but he got his ass knocked the fuck out, man. Yes, he did. He starts working uh, house show loops and going over draws and Mark Merrow. And then at the breakdown pay-per-view on September 27th, Bradshaw gets a win over Vader in seven minutes and 55 seconds. It's a no DQ falls count anywhere match. Uh, and Meltzer, I guess we should mention Bradshaw does a promo beforehand and Meltzer would say another match with no crowd heat, but damn, it was stiff. Bradshaw looks even less charismatic with his new haircut and shave than he did before. Once the people saw him live, they began filing out in rapid order to the bathroom. So the match was killed before it ever started. Bradshaw's offense was really stiff. Did I say that before? He mainly did Kawada style shotgun lariats and Bradshaw kicked out of Vader's Vader bomb. And then Vader kicked out of a sick lariat and then got clobbered by a second one. And Bradshaw got the pin after a neck breaker. It's amazing because even with the win, Bradshaw still isn't going to get over. Vader needed to have gone on home months ago because this is ridiculous. 
star and a half. Your your response? Well, the match was brutal. And, you know, Leon was in his twilight of his career at this point, and, and he wanted to put guys over. He wanted to put big guys over that he liked, too, and he liked John. So we did it. Match had no heat. Nobody cared. It was... It was a force and there was no story to it. So there was no way to care. And there wasn't enough, in my opinion at the time, there wasn't enough development into any of the characters for John uh, specifically. He was putting tag teams. And then when he was putting singles, it was just, was just going to be a loud mouth Texan without a whole lot of direction because John could talk and he was entertaining, but Without something to talk about, how fucking entertaining can you be? And that was the issue. It just wasn't working. It wasn't wasn't getting over. So let's talk a little bit about the pivot you guys are going to have. Um, this is the biggest win in Bradshaw's career up to this point. It's near the end of the run for Vader, but it does feel like you're you know you're giving him a win, and it's on pay per view. So maybe you want to do something with him. But you've had him shave. You've had him cut his hair. It feels like you're grabbing at straws for something for him. And then somewhere out of nowhere, November of 98, Bradshaw and Farouk start to team up as the Acolytes. How, how does that come to be? How do we go from this to the Acolytes? Well, John and Farouk were good friends, Ron Simmons. And two big bastards, Undertaker was forming the Ministry of Darkness and was thinking about having two big bodyguards in there, two big guys to do the bidding. And if they were a part of the ministry of darkness as a tag team to represent, you know, it was was faction time during that time. So the bigger and the better guys that you could have and the more of them than the better. So they were friends and it also, uh, it helped that they had good chemistry and, and they did have a story by being a part of the ministry during that time. That was that was the reason behind it. And, and I'll say, you, know, you mentioned cutting his hair. And this was during the time that JR went on a kick about, God damn, everybody, yeah, you want to be a wrestler? Got to have long hair. Got to have long hair and all this shit. And so JR, would, that was his advice to everybody. Hey, God damn, you want to get over, change your look, cut your hair. Which is good advice sometimes. But sometimes... It's not that fucking good. You can't grow your hair back overnight. You can cut it immediately. You can cut that shit and be done with it and gone, but it doesn't grow back overnight. So let's have a plan first before the guy just completely changes his fucking look. And that's what John had done. John, you know, was told to get a haircut unbeknownst to anybody else. Really? Um, but the acolytes putting him in the team, that was something that Taker wanted to do. And, and John and Ron were good friends and they made a hell of a team. Yes, they did. I assume that's a Vince Russo pairing. Vince Russo drew up the acolytes. It was actually an undertaker pairing, but Vince Russo had been working with the ministry of darkness. That was something Taker wanted to do. Yes. They started off. Being so that's under Vince's Russo's watch. Definitely. They started off being managed by the Jackal, but that doesn't last too long. Uh, why didn't the Jackal work out as a manager for the Acolytes? They didn't like him and they didn't need him because Hang again, on. I, I want to be clear. Are you saying that 
Simmons and Layfield went to management and said, we don't want this fucking guy. They didn't feel they needed him. And they knew that the idea was to go to the ministry of darkness and they didn't feel that the Jackal, that character worked in the ministry of darkness. So why put them with a mouthpiece now when they didn't need a mouthpiece, when they're going to be joining the ministry of darkness, that was the whole thing behind it. They didn't like it. It was like, well, you're putting us here with him now when we've got to get over there with the dead man. It just didn't make a lot of sense. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, the, the symbols on their chest. Just, you tell me, I don't know what the fuck they were. I don't think they knew what they were. Who came up with the idea? Hey, this is what we should do. Uh, I think that was taker as well. It was like, Hey, you paint some shit on you and, and kind of change it up a little bit. But I, I don't know if that was supposed to be just some dark, you know, underworld symbols or what the hell they were. But it was, it was always funny because I don't, like I said, I don't think that John and Ron knew what the hell they were painting. Well, here's the deal. In my research, I found out that it was occult symbols and it's like, uh, words I can't pronounce, you know, being a hillbilly Baptist, I don't know, but it's like Necronomicon or some shit. Uh, either way, it's an interesting time. It's the undertaker's ministry of darkness, whatever. Um, they start getting wins, which is what's important. All of a sudden Bradshaw sees himself getting W's left and right over teams like Godfather and Val Venus, the DOA, the Hardys. And then once they're put into the undertaker's ministry of darkness, it's not too long before they're turned into the corporate ministry. Um, I guess we should fast forward March 2nd, 1999. There's a, a now infamous match on heat from Pittsburgh. Public enemy gets a win by DQ, but boy, they didn't fucking feel like winners. Tell the story of how in the world we got here and, uh, the fallout from this match. Well, they had a finish for the match where the acolytes were going to put public enemy through a table right before they went out to the ring. The public enemy were going out to the ring first and they told Ron and John that they, Hey, we're going to take out that table spot at the end which was the finish. So they told him that. And then they went out and John turned around to Ron and Ron's like, what do you say? And he says, he said, take out the table spot at the end. He says, so they don't want to do the table spot. He says, I, I guess not. He goes, hmm. Well, fuck, we'll just bring the tables to them. And they made sure they got the table spot in. Pretty brutal. When they come back through the curtain, what does Vince or the office or the boys, what's the reaction to the acolytes and to public enemy? Well, first of all, I was going to see just, uh, you know, who was there when, when everybody came back, obviously John and Ron were ready for whatever might happen. And public enemy came back and walked right up to them, shook their hands, said, thank you very much. They didn't want any more of that. So I think everybody, you know, that just kind of told everybody where they were in public enemy, man, they weren't getting over. Um, talk to me about what you just said that showed everybody where they were. Well, that they, you know, they're supposed to be tough guys. They want it. They they're, they're fine. And Danny doing everything in the world to somebody else, but taking it is a different situation. 
So they were happy giving it out. They didn't want to take it. Is it not, now, fair, is it not fair to say that on some level, uh, there's like an unspoken pact between wrestlers and I'm not a fucking wrestler. So I'm speaking way out of turn here, but I've heard that the, the understanding in this brotherhood of wrestlers is that uh, I'm looking out for your body and trusting you with right. mine. Yeah. And when one of the guys sort of goes into business for himself and beats the fuck out of another guy, that's okay. Well, when the other guy's not doing what was agreed to do and the other guy is, is fighting you to get to the point. Yeah, it is okay. Because at that point, uh, it's not, you know, they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And so they were trying to go into business for themselves, them being public enemy and APA was trying to get to the, to the story that was supposed to be in that match. Okay. So what's, what's, uh, what's Vince McMahon think about somebody getting the fuck beat out of them on a show like this? Well, it was, Hey, they, you know what? I mean, I hate to say it cause I, uh, Johnny, I didn't really know Johnny at all. Uh, other than meeting him a few times. So I, I, I can't tell you much about Johnny, but Ted Petty, uh, to me was a stand up guy and Ted was, a. I always liked Ted a lot and I thought that he was was always a good stand-up guy. They they got in their head that you know they couldn't do certain things, didn't want to do it. It was that was their detriment. So Vince was Vince was kind of done with them at that point. And the boys will take care of the boys. And at that time in the business, that's how things happen. You, you let the, the dressing room police itself without management having to get involved and things pretty much usually tend to work out. Is the business like that anymore? I don't think so. And I think that that's just the society is not like it used to be. I remember, uh, doing a, going to my kid's school one time, meeting with the principal and, and saying that, you know, what's wrong with the kids today is nobody's been punched in the mouth. And boy, you would have thought that I'd just done something bad to his mother or something, but the society, um, kids in school, they don't go behind the supermarket and fight. And then once they do back in the old days, you had a fight with somebody, it was over. You came back to school the next day. The loser had a black eye. The winner was okay. And, and you moved on that settled it. Whatever difference you had, whatever bullshit there was, you fought it out. You had a winner. You had a loser next. And I, in this society, everybody gets a fucking trophy. Interesting. Let's keep it moving here. Um, Bradshaw's going to get his first world title win. Uh, and this is uh, a pretty cool thing. It's May 25th, 1999. Uh, they're going to get a win over X-Pac and Kane, and they become tag team champions. Um, Ron's been every kind of champion there was, but this is really the first taste of championship gold in the WWF. Does Bradshaw give a shit one way or another? I think that they, they look at it as a, yeah, it's, it's a good moment because it shows that uh, we're doing something with you and moving on. So that's, yeah, it's a good it's good to be in a story, you know, championships don't mean as much as long as you're in a story. If the championship is a story, even better. 
they eventually lose those titles on July 5th on raw to the Hardy boys. Let's fast forward to fully loaded July 25th, 1999 Farouk and Bradshaw regain the tag titles when they beat Matt and Jeff Hardy, who were also teaming with Mr. Duke dude, dude himself, Michael PS Hayes, it's going to be a two on three match. And then of course the finish you can guess sees Michael Hayes, take a double team power bomb and then get pinned costing his team. The tag titles, and this is the second time the acolytes of the tag champs. We recently talked about this on the Michael Hayes show. Michael Hayes in the same ring with Justin Hawk Bradshaw. That's kind of fun. Dave, Dave, Dave. It was. And and again, they're all working together, but uh I think this was Michael's last time in the ring for a long time. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. After this, the Acolytes are defending the title successfully in a bunch of triple threat matches against the Hardys, Edge, and Christian. On August 9th, they lose the tag titles back to X-Pac and Kane, and that sets up SummerSlam 99, where we get Farouk and Bradshaw beating Edge and Christian. Um, there you go. Star in three quarters. Kind of interesting, because I don't, even, uh, I don't really associate those teams as being in the same era, but yeah, there they are. Uh, next up, we've got X-Pac winning the four corners elimination match over Kane, Farouk and Bradshaw that happened at the no mercy 99 pay-per-view and the finish is something that kind of got shit on in the observer quote Farouk came off the top ropes for a shoulder block, but X-Pac caught him with the X factor for the pin and the finish was mistimed badly enough that the crowd was flat for it. After all the months building to the finish where X-Pac could finally pin a big guy, the crowd couldn't have cared less when he did so. Star and a quarter. What do you remember about X-Pac here? Finally getting a win over big guy and it's just falling flat. Sometimes it does. I mean, the best laid plans. And if there's one little thing off and the audience is taken out of the moment, that all the work that you did before can get lost in that one situation. But that happens. That's the business. And unfortunately, uh, it, it can even happen with the best of them. So X-Pop kind of got stuck with that. And it unfortunately is what it is. Let's talk about Survivor Series 99. Godfather, D'Lo, and the Headbangers are going to win an elimination match over the Dudleys and the Acolytes. Uh, and the Dudleys are the new company at the time. Um, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the success that public enemy had in ECW and now they're here in the company compare and contrast that with the Dudleys. How did that work with, uh, APA? Well, the Dudleys went in and the Dudleys did everything that they were asked to do and were professionals and they had great matches. The, the Dudleys and APA went out and beat the living shit out of each other and they all four loved it. So the difference is Dudleys came in to do business and the Dudleys came in to get people over and to work with guys and they didn't have that ego and they didn't have a problem doing what they were asked to do. And APA, the, all four of those guys like to work tight. They like to work snug and that's what they did. You felt it. Uh, Yeah. I, I don't think anybody can argue that. I think everybody felt it when those guys wrestled. Uh, <laughs> no shit. Let's get Armageddon. They may still be feeling it. They still are. That's great. A lot of, a lot of chiropractors know about their damage. 
Uh, Armageddon, December 12th, 1999. The Acolytes win an eight team battle Royal or in a tag shot or a tag title shot at the Royal rumble. Uh, this is his best year. 1999 has to be his best year in the company. And it comes being a, a tag partner with Farouk. You know, at this point, he's been saddled with a couple of different partners. Uh, of course, Dutch Mantel, even though they didn't wrestle a ton together, he's with him all the time. And then with Barry Windham, and now we're trying it again with Ron Simmons. Why did, why did it work better with Ron than anybody else? Chemistry probably. And I think that John had chemistry with Dutch Mantel too, but it was a different type of chemistry. Ron and John traveled together. They hung together. They did everything together. They trained together. So there was some really, really good chemistry there. It was an opportunity for Ron to get rejuvenated with a young partner. And it was an opportunity for Bradshaw to have credibility with the seasoned partner of Ron Simmons. Sometimes, man, you just put them together and you've got magic in this instance. You had magic where they, they weren't putting on, uh, they just were who they were. And it wasn't, it wasn't a stretch gimmick where they had to portray somebody else. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, the January 31st episode of raw, this is 2000. The main street posse asked the acolytes to protect them, which they refuse to do until the posse agrees to pay them. And when they do Bradshaw starts the APA, the acolyte protection agency, they essentially become bodyguards for hire. Pretty good idea. What can you tell us about this? How does it come to be? And let's talk about the creative of they're always backstage playing cards and drinking beer. And then the cutout doorway, which is fucking hilarious. Well, this started during the, the whole Chris Kresge run and, and Kresge and Brian Gewertz and Tommy Blancha doing a lot of the creative at that time. And this was an example of some of the fun off the wall things to take these characters. They were evil you know, with body paint and all this other bullshit on under the ministry of darkness. Now takers on doing other things. How do you then move on with the APA and this, well, the acolytes you become the APA protection agency. And in the beginning, I don't even know that anyone thought that it would go beyond one or two shows, you know, with the, Mean Street Posse asking for protection, but then it became they became so good backstage with the door there, and and I don't I, I want to say that might have even been Mick Foley's idea with the door shit, um, but it all worked. It all came together that those vignettes became iconic and made that tag team. Now I can relate to them. Now I like them. And you got to see him in a different light other than just a couple ass kickers in the ring. The new age outlaws get a win uh, over the acolytes to retain their tag titles at the Royal rumble 2000 in two minutes and 35 seconds. Why was the match so short? I have no idea. Shit. Probably just because we didn't have a lot of time at the rumble and we're looking at the damn show going, well, fuck, get on out there and get out, <laughs> go in and get out. So it just, um, probably a million and one reasons needing more time in the show. 
in April of 2000 on raw, the APA would protect Kai and Ty during a match when they were attacked by Buchanan and Bossman, And that set up a match for backlash. Um, the insurrection pay-per-view saw road dog pin Bradshaw after what Meltzer called a lousy looking pump handle slam and big boss man and bull Buchanan would beat the acolytes in a star in three quarter match that Meltzer would say was a stiff, fast paced match. We haven't talked a lot about bull Buchanan here on the show. Got any good bull stories you can share with us? Oh God. No, pull poor Barry Buchanan. He was a great hand and he was one of those guys, uh, from Smoky mountain wrestling that Cornette was always pushing wonderful, wonderful, uh, hand, great talent, but he just was missing that personality more than anything. And probably some of the best shit that he did was with John Cena is John Cena's sidekick to be the rapper. And that was some fun stuff that he did, but, but bull was just a, a wonderful man. Nice guy that I don't know if, uh, he was really made for the business. Well, but maybe he saved his money and maybe you need to save a little money. Are your credit card bills keeping up at night? Interest rates in the double digits Well, be smart and pay off your credit card balances with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Get a fixed rate as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay, and you could save thousands in interest. You can get a loan from 5,000 to $100,000, and there's no fees, and you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Plus, Lightstream is a division of SunTrust Bank, one of the nation's largest financial institutions, so you can have complete peace of mind. I've used Lightstream for years. I was able to even uh, get a loan from them years ago to buy a car so I was able to shop like a cash buyer and I felt like I got a much better deal. I got a tiny interest rate drafted for my account. It was a breeze. And if you want to save even more while well, our listeners get an additional interest rate discount, how about this? The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash wrestle. That's L I G H T S T R E A M.com slash wrestle. Now subject to credit approval and the rate includes a half a percent auto pay discount terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. So what are you waiting for? Visit lightstream.com slash wrestle for more information right now. You'll be glad you did lightstream.com forward slash wrestle. Okay. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, I guess we should mention that uh, on the May 18th, 2000 episode of SmackDown, the APA are hired to protect Crash Holly for an hour in order to prevent him from losing the hardcore title. And after the hour is up, the APA leave, and that allows Gerald Briscoe to pin hardcore or Crash Holly rather for the hardcore championship. And the situation results in Holly challenging Bradshaw in a hardcore match, which of course Bradshaw wins. And later that week on SmackDown, Farouk would defeat Holly in a hardcore match. So they're turning it into some pretty fun angles Uh, on May 30th. They try something different. It's a King of the ring qualifying match. Kurt angle would pin Bradshaw here. Uh, Fast forward to the end of the next month. And on raw, we've got the APA winning a tag team battle Royal against a ton of other teams. Uh, edge and Christian have been avoiding defending the tag titles against the APA. That's the backstory. And now they finally get the big payoff here where they're going to get a shot at those tag titles and they actually get a win, but it's by DQ 
And they did a bit earlier in the show where Christian was pretending, um, to be broken out and they bring in a doctor and a commissioner, Mick Foley, uh, and they deem that he is able to work, but just before match time, Foley catches Christian in the act of pretending to throw up. So Christian, of course, is busted. And they talk about all the different conspiracy theories. Um, it's a fun angle. It's a fun segment, but it's becoming clear that APA is more and more about comedy, but they still have this badass edge. Uh, who's, who's digging that? Who's writing most of the stuff at this point? Is this still Kresge and, and the bunch? Yeah, Brian Gewertz had a lot to do with it. And also during this time, I was doing, started back doing a lot of the vignettes backstage. So we would take the ideas and take a lot of that creative and and have fun with it. It was a combination of a lot of folks in creative, but it was the delivery of John and Ron that made these things work. And, you know, the, playing poker and smoking cigars and and what have you. That is what made it. You could have had a million and one different guys in there. And I don't think they would have made it work as well as they did when guys would just walk in and, Hey, use the door. Um, They didn't exist if they didn't come in the door. So that was always just some highly entertaining shit. And most of the time it was sitting at the table and trying to think of shit to do. (laughs) <laughs> we would all talk and come up with some crazy stuff. Who wrote the JFK line? As a reminder, the, the show's taking place in Dallas here and edge and Christian are saying something like, um, you know, they're, they're referencing the JFK assassination saying he would have killed himself if he had to spend any more time in Dallas. And of course, Bradshaw comes out and puts over how great Dallas is mentioning the Freebirds and Von Eriks and Bruiser Brody and Dick Murdoch and all those guys wrestling right here in this town in this arena and blah, blah, blah. So it's a big baby face moment, but it is sort of weird that we're just casually throwing in a presidential assassination reference. God, I have no idea. Probably just did it because they were in Dallas. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I don't think they'd be doing that today. It's weird how no. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, the Dudley boys and the APA are going to form an alliance on September 7th, 2000. And the following week on raw, the APA faces right to censor. And, um, yeah, that's what they're doing now. It is sort of weird that that's where we wind up, but the unforgiven pay-per-view, we would see the right to censor beat the acolytes and the Dudleys in six minutes and four seconds. As much as I love the Godfather, boy, I was not a fan of the good father. Um, I guess Vince really had high hopes for the right to censor as much as we had to sit through their bullshit, right? It was a message. It was a message of the parent, t- parent teachers council. I think that was the one at the time, but uh, they got a lot of heat, right? to censor had a shitload of heat. And when they took the hose away from the Godfather, even more. So yeah, that. That was a group that had a shitload of heat. It was good. After that, we're on to the no mercy pay-per-view and the scheduled match is supposed to be the acolytes and Lita taking on TNA and Trish Stratus, but it never takes place uh, because TNA take the knees out of both acolytes hitting Farouk with a tire iron and dropping a file cabinet on Bradshaw's knee. And allegedly the angle is done this way because Farouk's knee really does need arthroscopic surgery. And Bradshaw has a legit broken rib. 
Any memories of how Bradshaw broke the rib here before he needed to take a break? Probably working with the Dudleys. <laughs> I'm sure I'll hear about that one from Bubba. I, I don't. I think it was accumulation and he was working, you know, not telling anybody. And then it got to the point where I'm feeling a little right here. It's like, well, John, you might have a broken rib. Get that checked out and then get it checked out. And how'd you do that? I don't know. Probably in a match. A lot of times they just have no idea. Shit hurts and you keep going on and think it's going to go away when you wake up in the morning and it's 10 times worse. Sometimes it goes away. And sometimes you got them floating rib injuries. So I don't rib. I don't want to be rib. Yeah. It's definitely not a rib. No, uh, definitely not a rib. APA and Bradshaw are wrestling random matches on house shows at raw and heat really too, but no major angles or directions. Uh, the Royal rumble 2001, we see Bradshaw come in at number 16. He doesn't eliminate anyone and he's thrown out by the undertaker. Let's go to WrestleMania 17 in Houston, which we recently covered. We've got Bradshaw and Farouk and Taz on one side, good father, bull Buchanan and Val Venus on the other Bradshaw and our boys get the win and a star and a half, probably a pretty cool moment for Bradshaw to be on a WrestleMania card in the state of Texas. Is it not? Absolutely he had his folks there and all of his friends. Yeah. Be big moment for anybody to be on WrestleMania in Texas, by God. Connie. Just saying. Uh, June thirteenth, two thousand one. The APA are allowed to work for Maryland Championship Wrestling at the Slammin' Summer Showdown. And they get a win over Charlie and Russ Haas. What's the relationship like with WWE for you guys to be loaning talent out to MCW? I believe that was, um, Jim Kettner who was involved in that. I could be wrong. So, um, but we did have, it was a local group out of Maryland and from time to time, if it would help them out, the fact that they were working with, uh, Charlie and Russ, who we knew and had been through the developmental and all that, then it was something we could control and did it as a favor. They do those every once in a while. On the, not bad guys. Yeah, I can't get a favor. On July 9th, 2001 on Raw, Bradshaw would pin Devon to win the third tag team championship. And that takes us to the Invasion pay-per-view. We've got the APA defeating Sean O'Hare and Chuck Palumbo in a non-title match where it's the WWF champs versus the WCW champs. Let's fast forward to August 7th. On SmackDown, the APA would lose the tag titles to DDP and Canyon. Uh, I don't know when we'll talk about this again. What did Bradshaw think of DDP and Canyon? Oh boy. I actually liked them because they're both good workers. So got to be able to go out and have good matches and not just, you know, chop fest, chop meat and had no problem with that because Dallas was Dallas and Dallas hell of a worker and Canyon man. Canyon was hard to touch in the ring. He was one hell of a great worker. So they enjoyed those times because you could actually have matches with them. The SummerSlam 2001 pay-per-view we've got the Dudleys and test beating spike Dudley and APA. Uh, Nick Patrick is your referee. Uh, they get two and three quarter stars. Shane McMahon is involved here. Um, it's okay, but it sort of is what it is, but it is sort of the end of an era for a little bit because Farouk takes a hiatus 
and Bradshaw starts to work singles again. At this point, is Farouk just banged up or why did he need to take some time off? Yeah, Ron needed needed some rest. His shoulders, his knees, his back, everything was hurting on him. And Ron just needed a rest. And sometimes you got to just let him go and go heal up if he needed any surgeries. And I don't think he needed surgery. He just needed some time off the road to recoup. It's it's interesting though because normally when a, when one of the tag partners goes down, they try to pull both partners off or fill them just fill time for the guy who's still healthy. But instead, you guys try something again here on the October twenty second Raw. Bradshaw beats Hurricane to win the European title. So at this point, he's been in the company for like five years, and this is his first singles title. And it happens when his partner is injured. So you guys were clearly trying something here, huh? Just see, you know. It, Vince always in the back of his head thought, looked at Bradshaw and thought, we've got a single competitor here. We have a single attraction. So that's, he would always try to do that with Ron being out for a little while. Why not do something with Bradshaw? See what we have. I think John was lost at that point. I really do. At this period of his career, he wasn't confident as a singles competitor, in my opinion. So let's talk about, um, the European title 10 days after he wins it, he drops it to Christian on SmackDown. Do you think that you were trying something and you lost confidence in him or is it more, we wanted Christian to beat a big guy for the belt, not hurricane. Yes. The latter part, we wanted Christian to, to win the championship, not necessarily from hurricane. And it was transitional at yeah, transitional. Say that three times, uh, championship run for him short and sweet. All right, let's get to the no way out pay-per-view February, 2002 APA wins the tag team turmoil match for a shot at WrestleMania. They beat like Scotty too hottie and Albert Christian and Lance storm, the Hardy boys, the Dudleys, Billy and Chuck. Crowd's not super into it. Uh, match was okay. Got a star and a half. Let's get to WrestleMania 18. We've got Billy and Chuck retaining the tag titles in a four-way elimination match over the Hardys, the Dudleys, and the APA. This is not nearly the WrestleMania match that people want from the Hardys and the Dudleys, is it? Well, it was a departure from what they had done the previous year. That's for sure. But I thought that the match was pretty damn good. They all beat the shit out of each other. The audience though, was expecting that whole table ladder and chairs, uh, that they had gotten the year before. And they had seen so much that at some point you have to bring it back so that you can go, you know, go back to some of those things because otherwise it's, it's just tough to recover. And I've watched this match recently it was a damn good match they beat the shit out of each other and it was good okay so you know it's coming march 25th 2002 the apa is broken up during the draft bradshaw goes to raw farouk goes to smackdown Uh, why was it decided to split them up when did they know they were being split up how do they feel about it well they didn't like it first of all um because both guys felt they were better as a team. But again, it was explained to John, this is an opportunity to John to try and have a singles career. And if we're going to do anything, then let's do something. But 
they didn't know until it actually happened that night. And it was an opportunity to, to try something new, try something new with Ron, try something new with John and see if it works. The only way you're going to know is to try it and see what happens. The April 15th raw Bradshaw and Steve Austin would team up to take on Scott Hall, X-Pac and the undertaker. Holy shit. We went from teaming with Ron Simmons to stone cold, Steve Austin. And it happened in like three weeks. Yeah. He's got to be pretty happy with the split now, right? He was, but I still think there was a little bit lack of confidence. I think that's the best way to best way to explain it. Uh, as far as does he fit in here? He wanted to, he really wanted to be in that top picture. And, uh, sometimes it's just, I think it was a half step behind the people notice. And you look at, when you looked at that picture, it's like, okay, you know, which two guys really don't fit in here. And I think it was, it was John and, uh, X-Pac in that, in that big thing. So it was, but again, we were trying, man, get him out there, put him with Austin and John's natural personality is well, his natural personality is a baby face, but I think he comes across as a fucking heel. Well, no doubt about that. Um, April 21st, 2002 in Kansas city is backlash. He's got a singles match with Scott Hall, but Scott Hall gets the win. It, it feels a little stop and start, but I get it. I mean, at least he's figured in with the top guy. Uh, he starts to bounce around with the hardcore title. He winds up winning it 18 times in this era. Most of those wins happening on house shows. And when he's the champ, he renames it the Texas hardcore title, which is pretty fun. We did a whole show on the hardcore title belt and, uh, that entire run. So check it out in the archive, something to September of 02, he would suffer a torn left bicep at a house show. And that keeps him out of action for six months. Are you, uh, are you, you guys boys here by September of 02? Were y'all communicating while he's on hiatus? Yeah, I just, I kept in touch with him to make sure he was doing all right and see how his rehab was going. Uh, torn bicep sucks. And you know, that's one of those, but I, you know, give him call every month, make sure that, uh, to let him know we're still thinking about him and just get a progress report. Let's talk a little bit about, um, when they come back, because when he's back, he comes back in March of Oh three and he reforms the APA and he's working a lot of matches in OVW and then winds up eventually on SmackDown. Uh, they return on June 19th, 2003 to assist the undertaker in an ambush from the FBI. Uh, who, who likes the idea of putting the APA back together and why put them on SmackDown? Vince did because he felt that they were best when they were together, that the APA that Ron and, and John kind of floundered in singles up until this point, And that the only time that we were missing some of that creative, I mean, the, uh, entertaining aspect on SmackDown. So the idea was let's bring them back and let's get some more of that entertainment value from the APA, make them a team and let's get them in the mix. But they, they had spent some time down in uh, Louisville working out and getting the ring rust off. So when they came back this time, they, I think they were ready. Vengeance 2003, the APA invitational barroom brawl. You were in it. What can you tell us about it? Well, uh, first of all, if it was a shoot, I would have won it. 
But uh, <laughs> it was a gimmick. You know, it was a, it was a gimmick match to have on the show when you're looking at all of the talent that we had at the time on SmackDown and trying to come up with something unique. The barroom brawl was something and had a lot of unique characters in it. For some reason, somebody wanted the Easter bunny in the damn thing. And so we got the Easter bunny and out of the blue one day we were watching, um, the raw bowl where brother love had done the invocation and kept talking and going on and on and on forever. So then somebody says, well, and brother love should be in it. I was like, no, brother love's not going to be in it. Brother love ain't working. Brother love ain't going to be in it. That was all Vince had to hear brother love. And so I was announced on, on the air to, to be in the damn thing. And as you can see, I got my shots in. I, I took out a few people. Like I say, I'm three time black belt hall of famer, Conrad. So, you know, nobody really wanted to fuck with me on that, that their match. And, uh, I took a few people out with some chairs and some bottles and different shit. And Funaki and I kind of hit under the table for the majority of the thing. And by God, I did the job because I'm a pro. That's what I do. After this, they're working a lot about house shows, challenging uh, the world's greatest tag team, Shelton Benjamin and Charlie Haas for the tag titles. Of course, they lose all those matches and uh, no mercy. And on October 9th, the Bashams get a win uh, in eight minutes and 55 seconds over APA. It looks like the uh, bloom may be off the rose a little bit already for the APA return. Uh, Bradshaw starts working singles matches around this time against Big Show, Horseshoe, A Train, or Chuck Palumbo. We've talked about most of those guys, but not Horseshoe. What can you tell us about him? Horseshoe. God, I can't even remember his real name. Uh, from Arizona, and he was a friend. Of Jack Doan, the referee. Luther Reigns is the name. Luther Reigns. Ah, that's that was a gimmick name that we no, had no, for but him. But that's what people know yeah. him as. No, you're right. Luther Reigns, and a big bastard. It worked a little bit here and there. We were hurting for talent. Brought him in. Liked his look, but unfortunately, that damn bell rang, and he didn't last very long. But a really nice guy. I think he's doing real estate or something out in Arizona right now. Huh? Small world. Let's get to survivor series. Oh, three Benoit, John Cena, Bradshaw, hardcore, Holly, Kurt angle, big show, a train. I mean, everybody is in this one. Um, team angle gets the win at 13 minutes and 17 seconds. And going into 2004, Bradshaw is mainly just kind of house show presence. At any time when he's sort of on TV with a title, nope, just putting guys over on house shows. Any sort of doubt as to what he's doing or what the creative is? Is he an unhappy camper? I mean, we hear stories these days about so and so is not happy and so and so is laying on the locker room floor and whatever, whatever. Does that exist ever with JBL? John's one of the most positive people that I've ever met. So, no. Um, John wrote his book, you know, during this time, uh, he was New York times bestseller. He always won to 
delve into stocks and finances, an extremely intelligent and really bright guy. So John loved wrestling. John didn't give a shit about, you know, who he was, who he was wrestling and wins and losses. As long as he was involved and making some money, then he was happy and, and he would make the best out of a shitty situation. So yeah, I think there was part, part of him that, that might've been, but you would never know it. No, he was just wasn't a bitcher. Well, I mean, listen, there's a really no spot to slide this in here. Well, that's what she said. Guys, let's talk about sex. Good sex. Remember the days when you were always ready to go? Well, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. Bluechew.com. That's blue, like the color blue. Bluechew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as both Viagra's and Cialis, so you know they work. And you can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill. So you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Hey, Conrad, yes, Conrad, sir. I got to tell you, when I was in New Jersey last week, you have no idea the number of people that came up to me with their Blue Chew packets for me to sign. Because Blue Chew is absolutely taking over. It's the number one request I get whenever I do personal appearances from all my friends. They say, hey, Bruce, what's that code again? Wrestle, right? I, I do wrestle for the blue chew thing. I just got to know so I can make sure and take advantage of, of y'all's offer. But blue chew is hits the bomb. It's catching on. It's taking over the wrestling world by storm. It's all everybody's talking about. It's in every major wrestling locker room in the world. Uh, and you should find out why it's not just for guys who can't perform. It's for any guy who wants extra function to enhance their performance in the bedroom. Uh, Blue Chew is prescribed online. It's shipped straight to your door. It's in a discreet package. You avoid the in-person doctor's visits. You don't have to wait in line at the pharmacy. No more awkwardness. It's made right here in the USA. And since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, it's cheaper than a pharmacy. And right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Go to bluechew.com and get your first shipment for how much, Bruce? absolutely free but that's only when you use our special promo code wrestle all you gotta do is pay five dollars shipping again hey man that's bluechew b-l-u-e-c-h-e-w dot com use the promo code wrestle to try it absolutely free bluechew is better cheaper faster choice and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast and, you know, if you're a user of Blue Chew, the next time you see Bruce at one of his personal appearances, if you forgot to bring your packet, just show him what it can do. And, and he will sign that for you as well. Uh, okay. The guys find themselves in the 2004 Royal Rumble. Bradshaw comes in at number five. He's eliminated by Chris Benoit. Um, Bradshaw's back on house shows, very rarely on TV, but somehow finds himself in a match at WrestleMania 20. It's Rikishi and Scotty too hottie beating the Bashams and Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin and the APA. And not too terribly long after that, it's time for a pivot. March 18th on SmackDown, they lose a tag team. You're fired match to the tag champs, Rikishi and Scotty too hottie and general manager, Paul Heyman frustrated by an insult from the APA told Farouk, if he did not win that tag match, you're fired. Of course they lose the match. And then afterwards, 
Bradshaw leads Farouk back to Heyman's office and say they had not been fired, but instead they've resigned and Heyman clears up the misunderstanding and points out that they didn't win the titles. So you're fired. And, uh, WWF management or WWE management has uh, a lot of, sees a lot of potential in Bradshaw and that's all straight from Paul Heyman as the journal manager character. So we fired Farouk. But Bradshaw has high hopes and I think Farouk assumed that Bradshaw is going to still quit, but Bradshaw's hesitating and Farouk takes this hesitation to mean that he would not resign. So he promptly disbands the APA and leaves. And this effectively turns Bradshaw heel. What do you remember about this? Well, we had gotten to, we were draft stuff, all these different things, but looking at so many talent that were injured and we had to have someone step up. We really needed talent. We, we had to change some of the things we were doing and create new stars. Um, Ron was, unfortunately, it, it just was not working with Ron at the time. And so they told Ron, you know, maybe we'll do something with you as an agent. Ron really wasn't interested in that. And and Ron was let go. But John, the character with John, during this time, he was working with, uh, I believe, MSNBC, doing a lot of guest appearances. His book, the financial book, was flying off shelves. And he's appearing on all of these television shows as John Layfield. Articulate, great advice, and people are clamoring to have him as guests on their financial shows. While we're thinking of an idea, it's like, well, shit, he's already doing this. Um, what if we just put a spin on it and made him a heel? I, let him be, again, this one more attempt. And I remember Vince even saying, if this one doesn't work, then you know it's not going to happen for John. Let's make one last attempt with this Wall Street character, kind of like Michael Douglas played, um, who's a real asshole, and make one last attempt. And, and Vince gave him the come to Jesus meeting. John, if this doesn't work, then, you know, we got nothing for you. John took it and, and ran with it, and the JBL character was born, but it was met with a lot of skepticism because people thought, well, shit, you know, how many times are you going go to go to the well with this guy? And Vince just had the confidence and, and the wherewithal, the staying power to say, fuck it, I'm, I'm going to do this, and we're going to make it work. And John did his part by busting his ass and doing everything he could to make this character work, and we finally found a way to get the guy in the backstage on camera. And that was JBL. When you guys, uh, Keller would write Bradshaw was professional when informed of the company decision to release his tag team partner. WWE has big plans for Bradshaw as a singles wrestler. And as one source says, Bradshaw is happy enough with where his character is headed, that losing his tag partner wasn't a major concern. Uh, 
you were probably familiar with the circumstance when you sit him down and say, so, Hey, listen, we're letting Ron go. Here's what we've got. How's that met? John was upset. Uh, he didn't like it uh, because he and he and Ron were friends. He felt that, um, yeah, it's just sadness more than anything. You're, you're losing your friend and your, your partner that you travel with and hang out with all the time. It's not going to be the same on the road anymore. So John, John was definitely upset, but he also understood. And he, he was very professional about it, said he disagreed with it, but was moving on and he would make the most out of the new character. Just said, what do you need me to do? And we told him and he went and got suits made and the whole nine yards and he was ready to invest and move forward with this new gimmick. JBL has said that the JBL character is something he had in mind for a long time or character very similar at least, but creative was always reluctant to let him do it because he was always doing a lot of stuff with the troops and they didn't really need him. And quote, then all of a sudden at once, I think big show, big show was hurt. Brock Lesnar left the company and all of a sudden you need somebody immediately in that role. And that's when they did decide to make the change. Just all of a sudden one day, I don't think it was something thought about with a lot of forethought. Vince McMahon had always told me that he thought I could be a world champion. And he was probably the only person in the entire company that thought that I have no idea why he thought that, but when they came up with the JBL character, I knew this was going to be my last shot at it. So I was really hoping I could make it work. It didn't work out at all for the first few weeks. And if I hadn't been for Eddie Guerrero, it probably wouldn't have worked. Thank goodness. I had the right opponent and a good friend of mine. And it ended up working. Uh, JBL has also said that he was a big fan of J.R. Ewing and he sort of wanted to base the character off of that. Uh, a lot of our younger listeners may not be familiar with that name. Chat us up about J.R. Ewing. J.R. Ewing was an oil millionaire in the television show Dallas, and he was a nasty, conniving, one of the biggest heels ever on television. And he was just a big Texan with a lot of swagger and a, just an evil uh, genius that people love to hate. Who came up with the JBL name? I think I eventually did uh, because he was – appearing on television shows as John Layfield. So to keep the Bradshaw in there, it's like, well, what if his name was John Bradshaw Layfield? And then we shorten it like LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson to JBL being from Texas. And that's how we kind of came up with it. It was stay true to what he's doing out in the, out in the real world, but incorporate his working name and create a new moniker when you're doing it. So he went from Bradshaw, John Layfield in real life to John Bradshaw Layfield. That's JBL. So that's how it happened. The, uh, the car with the horns, the siren, the, um, the hand sanitizer, lots of little touches to this character, uh, who all would have had influence on that. Oh God, that was the horns and the car and all that was all Vince and the, the hand sanitizer was me commenting on Vince, always doing the hand sanitizer on, on the plane and things like that. And I had seen one time, uh, China at a airport where 
fans came up and they shook her hand. And immediately after they shook her hand, she put hand sanitizer on her hands and like did her hands. And I thought, oh my God, what a heel. But it was, I, I looked at that. So that's one of the best moves ever for a heel. And I said, what, do you, what if you like shake their hands, shake their hands, and as soon as you're done shaking their hands, do the hand sanitizer because that's an asshole move. And it just was a conglomeration of a lot of different ideas. It is interesting, though, because, you know, you and I have done meet and greets where we shake 250 people's hands in a row. And afterwards, it's sort of a natural inclination to think I probably need to go wash my hands, right? I just shook 250 hands. That's a lot of folks. Absolutely. But we don't do it in front of them. We don't shake, we don't shake their hands and then squirt hand sanitizer and then go to the next one, shake their hand and put more hand sanitizer on. No, it was a great touch. It's super heelish. I don't know why it comes off so heelish, but it certainly does. Cause um, he's a heel doing it. Motherfucker. Tremendous. The April 8th Smackdown Bradshaw's talking about Southern ignorance and then humiliates a fan making him wax the hood of his limo for a thousand bucks in 60 seconds. But of course he sabotages the contest. Boy, that sounds kind of familiar. How much of this was directly patterned after the million dollar man? A little bit of it was, and we had to have that tinge to it because we didn't want people to like him. So there were parts million dollar man. A lot of it is, is based on Vince McMahon. If you were to ask me, but, um, a lot of it based on the, the million dollar man. It's just John in general, um, being as damn smart as he is. You know, I was, I would sit in meetings with him and listen to him speak to people who, when they would only see him on television and then you're in a boardroom with him, go, what the, where the fuck this guy come from? Um, and he, he's a different human being. So it's a combination of all the above. Yeah, it's fun stuff. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, there's a vignette that airs with Bradshaw on the Mexican border lecturing about illegal immigration. Uh, he's, uh, did a little border chasing and Kurt angle announces in the ring that Bradshaw has been appointed the winner of the great American trophy. And of course, Guerrero destroys the trophy and Guerrero is the WWE champion at the time. So when he destroys it. Immediately, he finds himself in an angle with JBL. Uh, is there anybody well, sort of raising their eyebrow about, wait a minute, this guy's wrestling for the world title and he was just doing enhancement work a couple months ago? Well, no, they didn't. They bought it. And I tell you, it was the, the vignette you just talked about on the U.S.-Mexico border was something that we shot in East Texas. I had uh, driven up there to meet John and John and his dad had a friend that had all this sprawling land and had a big fence across it and everything that we could shoot in the middle of the night and do whatever we wanted to do on the land and what have you. So I get there, I've got the crew with me and everything. And, uh, I'm like, okay, John, can we just go ahead and go over to the house and see it and let's set up. And it was on a Wednesday and he says, well, Mr. Pritchard, they're in church. Well, can't we just go? I mean, we're not going in the house. Can we just start setting up, you know, on the land? He says, well, I'm not real sure where they live, but I've got an idea. They're up here on this hill and we go down that road and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, okay. Can we go? So we take off. I've got the entire crew with all the lights and all this other shit. And we pull up to this ranch 
we open the gate, we drive down the long road to the house and to the, all the horse land in the back and all that shit. And it's like, well, where's this, this fence you were telling me about? And he goes, well, I think it's way back there, but we should probably wait till they get here. We're waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally this pickup truck comes to the gate and they stop. And I'm like, well, that must be them. And they pull up a little further on down the road. It's in like a short driveway, man. It's like a, you're in East Texas, big sprawling ranches and shit. Yeah. Pulls up a little more stops. And you see the light on in the, in the truck, in the cab of the truck. And you see the two people in there doing something and we're waving and shit. And, and, and I'm sorry, I forgot the, the lighting crew and the guys are all walking around with flashlights and shit, flashing lights all over the place, looking for power and different things all around the house. So as this truck gets there, John and I go to approach the truck waving and all this shit. Next thing you hear is a sound that you just never forget. The shotgun. Yes. Yeah. And this guy had that shotgun fucking just cocked and pointing at us. And we're like, Whoa, we were at the wrong house. Oh my God. And thank God everybody in town knew who John's dad was. And John starts going on about, you know, his dad and he goes, well, I know him. Well, yeah, you're looking for old so-and-so's ranch. Boy, I was about ready to, (laughs) I thought I had some burglars down here. I was going to get me some. I'm like, oh, I mean, I, if I had not already taken care of my business earlier in the day, I would have shit myself right there. Yeah. It was terrifying. And we were just like a couple ranches over, but yeah, we were at the wrong fucking house. Started unloading the shit. So then we went out and Rudy Gonzalez, actually the guy who helped train Shawn Michaels or, and, and worked with Shawn Michaels and all that stuff, uh, was that was him and his family that we used coming across the border there. It's amazing. Let's, um, let's keep it going. The next month or so JBL finds himself wrestling Eddie on the, uh, house show loop. All of course for title matches. Eddie wins every time April 22nd on SmackDown Bradshaw would be El Gran Luchador billed as the Mexico champion. A week later, a vignette would air with Bradshaw ripping on illegal immigrants, tree huggers, and socialists on May 6th. Michael Cole announces a tragic accident occurred over the weekend and footage airs from El Paso, Texas, where it was a house show with Bradshaw having an interaction with Andy Guerrero's mom. I'll let you take it from here. Mother's day in El Paso, Texas, where the Guerrero's are a dynasty. And the idea was that on mother's day, that we would have a presentation of flowers and recognize Eddie Guerrero's, uh, the matriarch of the. Guerrero family, his mother. And during this time, Bradshaw would interrupt and Bradshaw would approach Eddie's mom, who would then go down as if she was having complications and trouble breathing. Um, not go all the way as to say she had a heart attack or anything like that, but just that she was in shock and this would infuriate Eddie Guerrero wanting to destroy John Layfield. 
we had uh, their family doctor was actually the doctor that we had that we were going to use for the shoot. And Eddie and uh, Chavito and uh, Chavo Sr., Chavo Classic were there. And Chavo Classic kept, because Eddie's the baby. Eddie was the baby of the family, and Eddie and his mom were very, very close. And so Chavito's like, hey, man, we got to get some, we'll get some color on mom, man. Why don't we get some color on her, man? Just a little bit. Let him get to her. And Eddie's getting hot. No, God damn it. We're not fucking touching my mother. And the more, the hotter Eddie got, the more Chavo Classic would suggest outlandish things. Like, mama, you can take that clothesline, right? Or how about the boot? Just a boot, a boot safe. And of course, she's like laughing and she's fine with it. And Eddie's getting madder and madder and madder. Nobody's going to touch my mother. So much so that, like, when I wanted John to touch her, it's like, can he just approach her? I don't want him touching her. I was like, Eddie, I said, let him, let him go to take the flowers. And all this hoopla going on. And, and she wasn't feeling all that well anyway. But in the, in the hoopla, she kind of lost her breath and um, went down before she was supposed to go down. Where I'm like going, God damn it, fucking Guerrero missing their cue. Uh, but it was very real because it was real. And she was, her doctors is looking at me going, I think she's having a heart attack. And I, I said, we're not going to go the heart attack route. And then I realized he was serious. And it came, it went from an angle to, we got to get her the fuck out of here. And we had all the paramedics. We had real paramedics. We had a real, we had her actual doctor and we had a real lamb. We had everything there. So she ended up going and, and getting checked out. And thank God it was, it was not as bad as we had originally planned, but I thought Eddie, Eddie, I thought was going to kill me. Because in his head, it was my idea, and I put his mother in danger, so I should be the one to be killed. Now, they all loved it when I pitched it, <laughs> but yeah, it's not a lot of fun dealing with a pissed-off Guerrero. They can be a little intense at times. We had a uh, state trooper. John's car was in the back to where when right after this deal, because crowd in El Paso can be a little hot sometimes. After this deal, we had Layfield go get right in his car and take off with a state trooper escorting him. They took him right to the state line. I said, you're on your own, sir. Or right to the city line, and he was gone. But, yeah, yeah, that was a fun phone call to make that night. Well, on the episode of SmackDown, they interview Bradshaw via satellite from New York City. And he, of course, says he's not responsible for the heart attack. And he asks, he says, I just asked her politely to leave and it's her fault that she had a heart attack. After all, she's the one who taught Eddie to lie, cheat and steal. And that's just the type of people they are. My relatives came here in a boat, not an inner tube. So they're turning the heat up Uh, a week later. Bradshaw says by telephone that he's got a surprise for Eddie later on. So when Eddie is cutting a promo in the middle of the ring, Bradshaw's white limo arrives. But when Bradshaw doesn't come out, Eddie comes in and bashes in a side window. Then Bradshaw steps out and orders the cops to arrest him. Guerrero is handcuffed and Bradshaw takes a few shots at him. Later in the show, Bradshaw pins Ray Mysterio in about eight minutes. And in the end, Bradshaw threw Ray into the announcer's table and then power bombed him from the top turnbuckle. 
uh, and then hit his clothesline from hell for the win. And then he did a promo for the pay-per-view and his title match against Eddie. And he went on WWE.com and criticized those who second guessed WWE's decision to put him in the pay-per-view main event slot. And he said, for those of you fat, out of shape, internet wannabes who have never done anything more athletic than play checkers, kiss my ass for doubting me. JBL will deliver Sunday and you can report whatever you want. And you will also realize how little influence you have, except to your little nerd friends. How long has it been since you guys that spend all your time reporting on us have been with a woman other than your mother? After all, when I see you in airports hanging out, you're always with guys. You don't have a questionable sexual orientation, do you? Of course, it's 2004. I don't judge. So he's looking for heat in every way he can get it. And this is, even though a lot of people would question the way he went about getting it here, maybe a real heel and not a cool heel has been hard to do since the NWO made being a cool heel, a thing. And so everybody sort of wanted to be the cool heel for a while. And here JBL is just doubling down on, Nope, I'm a dickhead. Everybody hate me, please. Right. And then that's the difference. A lot of times is there's people who want to be hated and those that just want to be cool. Um, who just want to be a star. I wanted to be hated. John wants to be hated. So he plays the heel all through and through, and you're not going to see him waver. Yeah. That's the reason it stands out because he's just committed to being super hateable. Um, he jumps, uh, this according to Wade Keller in May in the, uh, torch Bradshaw has jumped from Fox news to CNBC for a twice weekly segment on bullseye. CNBC is the number one rated financial news network, but much less viewed overall than Fox news. Also, I guess we should mention, um, well, you touched on it. The book have more money now is really what landed him these opportunities. Did Vince see some sort of crossover appeal with John? I mean, he's doing cable news stuff all the time now, but did Vince see that in him back then? And who did that sort of catch off guard when you've got this? rough and rugged car playing beer drinking well john layfield but then he's you know a talking head on news well it was we just used that to our advantage to create jbl and it happened by accident just it just kind of happened when he was out promoting his book when they realized how well spoken he was and how knowledgeable he was um so the other networks capitalized on it and he got permission to do it and at the time it was around the WWE schedule and it's just more exposure, more everything. So more power to him, more power to him. Indeed. Let's keep it moving here. The judgment day pay-per-view. This is it, baby. If you haven't seen this match, stop what you're doing and go watch it. Judgment day 2004 is something else, man. John Bradshaw Layfield's going to beat Eddie Guerrero by DQ Bradshaw had quote unquote, absolutely guaranteed victory before the match. They're going to go 23 minutes. Uh, it's a brawl from hell. Here's directly what Wade wrote about it. Guerrero bladed and hit a gusher for perhaps the bloodiest scene in WWE history. Bradshaw was shocked when Guerrero kicked out of a power bomb and then Guerrero did a Superman comeback late and hit a DDT for the DQ Guerrero hit Bradshaw with the world title belt. That Bradshaw brought into the ring two and three quarter stars, dude. What a crazy, crazy, crazy match. The blood loss is incredible. Meltzer would report 
that uh it was so significant i mean blood's literally spurting out of his head with every beat of his heart it's crazy he goes to the hospital uh, because guerrero says or not guerrero but wade keller says guerrero went backstage and went to shock and was taken to the hospital he got two bags of iv fluids to try to rehydrate him and he got 16 stitches quote the deep gash was considered nothing more than human error it was not scripted for him to bleed that heavily, and most within the WWE believed that there was just too much blood to the point that it took away from the drama, since rather than getting into Guerrero's comebacks, viewers were either rightfully queasy or grossed out or simply concerned for Eddie's health. Others have bled heavily in WWE rings in recent years, most notably Vince McMahon and Triple H, but for sheer volume and duration, Guerrero's bleeding at judgment day tops the list. I, I don't, I can't imagine that anybody thought he was going to bleed this much. Did you talk to Eddie about why he, I mean, he, I, it's just an accident. I mean, it's just an accident. I don't think that anybody thought that it was going to be as bad as it was, uh, including Eddie it's shit happens. Sure. So, you know, you got to go with it. He's, he's going to take it all the way to, through the, through the match and not waver. Um, you know, the backstage afterwards was, was hairy because Eddie didn't go into shock. Um, but he was, it was to the point that we felt get him to the hospital to get stitches or staples or whatever it is that he's going to need versus trying to do it here so that they can give him fluids and they can give him everything else. Um, cause he had lost so much blood. The, medical personnel in the back, we had him in the trainer's room and they started to put IVs in him and Eddie sat up, ripped everything out and like pushed his way through everybody in the trainer's room to go back to the locker room. And as he did that, it was one of those scenes that I can only imagine, you know, you, you picture yourself in a movie and there's Eddie Guerrero storming, down the hallway backstage and Michael Hayes and I are behind him just walking behind him, pleading with him, please, Eddie, you gotta go. And Eddie went back into the dressing room and he went and looked at himself in the mirror, went and sat down. And I told him, I said, Eddie, it's going to happen one of two ways. You can go to the hospital, you can get stitched up, you can get some fluids. They can do whatever they can check you out or not go to the hospital and you're going to pass out eventually. And then you're going to go to the hospital and it's going to be much worse. So please let us get you taken care of. And he just looked up at me and says, okay, will you go with me? I said, of course I will, Eddie. And then later on, once we started getting all of his shit together, he, he came to me and, and he says, he goes, is it okay if Chavo goes instead? I said, fuck yes. But, um, it was, it was bad and he did go to the hospital. He did get it stitched up, got some fluids and we had Eddie and I had adjoining rooms. So when he got back, I made sure that, uh, he had his grilled chicken, Caesar salad and all that other shit and got some food and slept with the door open between the rooms. So if he needed anything that I was right there. So it was, it was a long fucking night, man. I'll tell you that. What's Vince's reaction when he sees his champion pouring blood 
Lava. Oh, he hated it. He he just he hated it because it was just way too much. It took away, it took away from the match, and it it put the sympathy in the wrong place. If you know what I mean, uh, in Eddie bleeding, that's not where we wanted the sympathy, and it was uh, it was just too much. It was overdone, way overdone, and it wasn't meant to be that way. That was just a just an accident that happens. Man, that's something else. After this match, JBL's working a lot of house shows against Eddie and Rey Mysterio, and that's leading up to Eddie and JBL's rematch on pay-per-view, which of course is the Great American Bash, June 27th. Uh, on May 20th, Guerrero will come out and brag about leaving Bradshaw empty-handed on Sunday, and he shows off a bloody Bradshaw cowboy hat. And he said he'd grant Bradshaw a rematch tonight because he wanted another piece of him. And Bradshaw came out and said, he's not a gambling man because gambling is for lazy, simple-minded people who want an easy payoff. And he didn't make his fame by gambling. So instead he demanded that Guerrero hand him the belt he earned by winning by DQ and Kurt Angle came out and set up another match. So we got Bradshaw and the Dudleys taking on Rey Mysterio and RVD and Eddie Guerrero. Um, they go 15 minutes and Guerrero doesn't come out right away, but eventually he does. And he collapses out of nowhere and the ref made a fast three count after Bradshaw went for the cover after the collapse and Wade Keller would report that Guerrero had been suffering from a mild case of anemia, which was related to his blood loss at judgment day, which is why they booked that angle that way. What can you tell me about the angle of Eddie just collapsing so closely after, you know, all the blood loss, you clearly had everybody concerned. Sure, we did, and we used it to our advantage, and that's why we did it. Uh, similar to the Shawn Michaels getting, uh, the, when he got beat up by the Marines or whatever happened, and using that with Owen Hart, it was the same same thinking here, was people had seen, they had actually seen the damage and the physicality Eddie Guerrero had been through. They would understand it if he just collapsed in the middle of a match, and that's what we did. Let's talk about... Um... What happened the next week, which I can't believe is really a thing Saturday night, Munich, Germany, and Bradshaw has managed to offend the German patrons by imitating Adolf Hitler's salute several times before and during his match. And of course the gesture was meant to be an extension of the racist character he plays in the U S but in Germany, such references to a shameful era of their past are not only inappropriate in an entertainment setting, but illegal. And WWE management did not instruct Bradshaw to make these gestures. And he was scolded for his actions afterwards and told not to do them the next night. Uh, a torch reader from Germany wrote Wade. I don't know how stupid WWE is, but this is the worst thing you can do in Germany. It is forbidden by law and you can go to jail for it. Another writer would say JBL did the actions during the main event of the show. And he did it as I remember five or six times with the Nazi walk and Heil Hitler sign. Those actions have shocked all of wrestling fans in Germany. JBL should entertain the German fans, but what he did is unforgivable. Bradshaw uh, is smiling as he's imitating Hitler. And part of the irony of Bradshaw's character is that while he preaches about how great America is and rips on the culture of other races, his ignorance of the complexity of issues and insensitivity to people different from him confirms the stereotype of Americans that many Europeans have. This is all directly from the torch. 
WWE management is apparently in an uproar over his actions. And eventually they're aware that he did it out of ignorance, not maliciousness or any intent to create a major controversy. One colleague told Wade Bradshaw's not a racist in real life, but he's not nearly as smart as he thinks he is and lacks any sense of culture or common sense. Another wrestler said Bradshaw has made a lot of enemies in wrestling over the years with his bullying and beating the shit out of young guys in the ring over the years. And this is just what those enemies were waiting for. Something to sink him. Vince isn't going to take the hit for him on this one. And there was even some speculation that maybe CNBC might drop him based on the controversy. You were there and you weren't there at the tour, but you were certainly there when the call comes JBL going into business for himself. What does Vince think of the reaction? What's the heat? What's what's everybody thinking? Yeah. John did go into business for himself and it's from John spent a lot of time over in Germany working for Otto Vons and it's my understanding that the, the heels there had done it for years, um, to get heat. And there's a difference, I think maybe from a German doing it than an American doing it. I don't know. I, I don't think it works whether you're German, American, Mexican, Irish. I don't think it really matters. It's, it's tasteless to do in that country. Um, it's tasteless to do period. So John was trying to get heat. That's what he was trying to do. And it was a poor choice of tactics to get heat and landed his ass in hot water. So it it was, it was his decision. He did it and it got national attention from, you know, folks that again, he didn't have an internet back when people were doing it and everything else. You didn't have cell phones that recorded shit all over the place. So it was different time, different place. And now he had to be accountable for his actions. And I think that, uh, losing the CNBC deal, which they let him go over it because people had complained, uh, to CNBC about it. And it was, uh, that was a heavy hit for him. Yeah. Let's just mention that on the June 19th torch, Wade Keller would write that CNBC, the financial news cable network that recently hired Bradshaw away from Fox news to host his own weekly show, fired him last Tuesday in response to his imitation of the well-known hail Hitler gestures during a wrestling match in Germany. The previous weekend, a CNBC spokesman called his behavior offensive and inappropriate and said the network no longer wanted to be associated with him on Tuesday morning before the CNBC firing was made public. WWE apologized for Bradshaw's behavior stating in a story and the story at the top of the headlines listing WWE and John Layfield deeply regret Mr. Layfield's actions in the ring at our event in Munich and apologize if it has offended or upset our fans. Mr. Layfield has been reprimanded for his actions. The apology though, is removed from the website by noon that day and no explanation was given for the prompt removal of the apology and WWE sources say Vince McMahon felt the controversy had been blown out of proportion and believed his being fired from CNBC was punishment enough. Allegedly it's a six figure gig and Bradshaw remains slated to headline the great American bash against Eddie Guerrero. Although plans for him to carry this feud against Guerrero all the way to SummerSlam may have now changed more so due to concern over the buy rate than the judge, uh, the buy rate of judgment day rather than the Germany incident. So was there 
discussion. This does feel like something that Vince might say, oh fuck, we got to fire him. I mean, we've seen like Brian, Daniel Bryan was fired years ago for choking Justin Roberts with his tie. So we've seen moments where guys just make a mistake and then they're fired. Um, because it's just the hot button issue in the country or whatever. And, and WWE is trying to do a little CYA. So they fire the guy almost with an understanding that, Hey, this isn't forever. It's just what we got to do for PR right now. Did that ever cross anybody's mind here? I don't know if it did or not. Um, yeah, I was in strictly creative at this time. So those decisions didn't come across my desk and I, I really don't know. I know John thought that he would be fired and it was a big blow for the MSNBC. That was a major hit for him. Um, sometimes you do stupid shit and you got to pay the consequences and and that this is a perfect example of that. Layfield explained in an interview with Washington post, I'm a bad guy. He's talking about on WWE TV. I'm supposed to incite the crowd. I've done it for decades. I really didn't think anything of it. Talking about the Nazi salute. I know how bad it is. I've lived there. I've been, uh, and seen those places where they exterminated millions of Jews. I draw the line between me and my character. That's like saying Anthony Hopkins really enjoys cannibalism. What do you make of, uh, the explanation here? I know that, you know, we've talked about this before where we argue it's entertainment, but I say, well, it's a little different because nobody approaches Anthony Hopkins in real life and talks to him as if he's Hannibal Lecter, but people do approach uh, John as if he's JBL. Well, again, but he is an entertainer and he's playing a character. Sure. And, and that is, it, it is the same thing, but sometimes it's harder for people to draw the line with wrestling. We get painted with both, with both sides and unfair or not. It just, regardless, um, this day and age, you can't do those things. Um, he defended it on Howard Stern once as well. Um, it was the June 18th interview on Howard Stern. He said, I make fun of everybody I can. Uh, I, he described his character as a cross between J.R. Ewing, Pat Buchanan, and David Duke. And he compared his role as a wrestler to that of an actor in a movie. That's like saying Anthony Hopkins is culpable for being Hannibal Lecter. Um, and he blamed his being fired on CNBC quote on some little guy that had a pro wrestling website who emailed the network. And he says, of course, he's not at all in favor of the actions of Nazi Germany. And, uh, that's sort of it. Let's talk about it. Great American bash, June 27th, 2004. Bradshaw's going to beat Eddie Guerrero in a bull rope match in 21 minutes and 11 seconds to capture the WWE title. Some nice bumps, some solid intensity, three and a quarter stars is what Wade gave it. It is pretty interesting that it looks like you're, you know, Hey, I might be getting fired. Fast forward two weeks. Nope. You're the champ. Well, we'd had that planned all along and it was, you know, this, that great American bass show, God, it was, a just a battle in and of itself. And we had had a finish that we'd run by Vince and approved it. Vince wasn't there. So we were doing everything by phone at that point. And everybody had a different idea on what the match should be. So Vince didn't really understand the dragging around, touching all four corners with the bull rope match. 
And sometimes when you're not, when it's not right in front of him to make a decision, he'll say, okay, I get that. And he'll visualize it. But then when it's in front of him and it's going to happen in the next few hours, he'll, he'll change things. Um, this was one of those situations. I remember that day, Dusty was at TNA and Vince told me, he goes, call Dusty, get a finish. He's done those bull rope things before. And I actually did. I, I did call Dusty and ask for help. And Dusty liked our finish, but it was, it was just a, a combination of a lot of different shit. And I think by the end of that night, all I wanted to do was get on a plane and go home. <laughs> it was just, it was one of those nights that I try and black out in my life. Cause it was, it was a challenge to say the least. JBL was very complimentary about Eddie. He says Eddie was the perfect character for JBL at the time. And he was such a popular character that it made all the difference, but Eddie and I were really good friends. Uh, and he talked a lot about how Eddie really helped him with a lot of the promos, as far as the content of what would get over with the crowd. John is even quoted as saying, Eddie really took it personal and that he wanted my character to get over because it was failing miserably at the beginning. I'd been a tag team wrestler, a mid card guy for so long that people weren't buying me as the main event guy. And Eddie really took it personal that he could help make me. That was one of the main reasons that the JBL character succeeded. He also says that it was actually Eddie's idea to drop the title to him. You know, Eddie took such great pride in being champion. Why do you think, uh, he was ready to, to help put it on John here? Because it was the right thing to do. And Eddie also took it as a challenge. Can he get Eddie needed people to work with? So Eddie saw the depleted talent roster as well and knew that he needed opponents. He needed to build them. So he took that as a challenge and it was a personal challenge from Vince as well. You know, what can you do with John and Eddie liked John and was bound and determined to get him over and make, make him a big, big opponent for him. On the July 15th SmackDown, JBL is going to beat Eddie Guerrero in a cage match to retain. And Guerrero hits a frog splash off the top of the cage, which is pretty incredible. When he finally crawls over and makes a cover, JBL kicks out out of instinct and El Grand Luchador ran out and prevented Guerrero from escaping the cage, which gave JBL the chance to drop to the floor first. Of course, after the match, Guerrero yanks off the mask to reveal that El Grand Luchador is actually Kurt Angle. Uh, a week later. Bradshaw would say he's going to defend the title against Rocky Balboa. Later in the show, he stood next to the Rocky statue and cut a promo. And then he beat, uh, an enhancement talent undertaker walks to the ring. Bradshaw looks scared. Undertaker blocks a Bradshaw cheap shot attempt and then choke slams him and announces that he is his opponent for SmackDown or I'm sorry for SummerSlam. Um, August 5th, Bradshaw's ripping on the fans in Texas. Then he calls out taker. And a little person comes out dressed as the undertaker. JBL rips on him verbally until the real undertaker comes out. And Orlando Jordan turns heel here by saving JBL from taker. And then taker choke slams the little person dressed as uh, him as JBL and Jordan fled. Woo. Chat me up here. A little undertaker. This is hilarious. Yeah. He's only half dead. Is this uh, Vince McMahon's idea? It feels like a Vince McMahon idea. 
I honestly do not remember. <laughs> um, I think it was a combination of, of John and take kind of thinking of, you know, what, what ass holy and thing can we do here? And we had never done a miniature taker before. I really need to find that guy. I've got an idea. I got a booking for him. Um, Jordan becomes JBL's chief of staff. Some would say if, uh, you're recreating the million dollar man character, uh, in a way with JBL that maybe Jordan is JBL's Virgil. Is that no. the thinking here? No, we were creating an entire staff. And you know, the other thing that people kind of got lost on is while well, we throw out J.R. Ewing also at the time, a lot of the mannerisms and a lot of the stuff was very presidential. And we were, we were mimicking uh, a lot of the stuff from George Bush at the time and dressing like Bush and, and different things and trying to, uh, without being political, but just try to steal some of those mannerisms and nuances throughout this whole promotion. JBL beats the undertaker in 17 minutes and 38 seconds to retain the heavyweight title. Uh, Orlando Jordan, of course, is with JBL here. This is SummerSlam 04. Uh, the crowd is booing undertaker's offense and chanting Spanish table, Spanish table. Um, eventually the big finish is not the Spanish table. Taker rams JBL into the limo windshield and then slams in through the roof of the limo. An interesting little visual here. Two and three quarter stars. What did you think of Undertaker and JBL at SummerSlam 04? I thought that they had a good match. I thought that it was it was fine. It's two big guys and, and it's kind of similar styles in a way. So maybe a little bit of a clash of styles, but again, it served its purpose and did well. Wade Keller wrote the locker room tide seems to have turned against John Bradshaw Layfield, continuing to be the WWE champion wrestlers who recently justified his run as champion by pointing out how hard he works are now saying they don't have faith in him being a legitimate draw. The widespread feeling in the locker room is that the biggest reason JPL was given the title is that a creative team member, Bruce Pritchard lobbied for it. Pritchard, along with Johnny Ace is one of the least popular people in the entire locker room. Yes. It's so bad that anyone who is seen as one of Pritchard's boys automatically develops tension with the other wrestlers, which may explain why JBL is falling out of favor. Well, you've always been a fucking heat magnet. Have you not? You know it. That's what I do. I'm a heel motherfucker. So, I mean, were you hearing this? Oh, he's your boy. That's why he's a champ. I mean, who's, who's saying that, that you know of? I'm sure people that were saying that, that weren't in that spot, that, that wanted to be in that spot, that felt that they should have been there and that weren't. So I, I don't know. I don't listen to that shit. <laughs> All righty. There we go. Uh, what do you, what do you think about the comment that you're one of the, uh, least popular people in the entire locker room? Well, you know what? As far as, uh, being one of the least popular people, at least I'm have a job in the business and I've actually done something in the wrestling business. So I don't really care in December, JBL added the Bashams to his cabinet. And that takes us to the Armageddon pay-per-view JBL is going to defeat Booker T and undertaker and Eddie Guerrero in a four-way match to retain 
uh, Wade would call it a solid four-way match, including some ladder spots. I gave it three and a quarter stars and heading into Oh five. He's working a lot of house shows against big show. The Royal rumble, 2005 show would see JBL retain the title in a triple threat over Kurt angle and big show after he pinned Kurt with a clothesline from hell. The next month is the no way out pay-per-view with JBL defeating big show to retain the title in a barbed wire steel cage match. Big show is going to choke slam JBL off the top rope through the ring and then, uh, crawl out from under the ring, winning the match by escape. What a fucking genius finish. Who thought of that? That was a Vince McMahon finish, man. That was one of those. What ifs we started talking and came up with that crazy shit. It's genius. I, I mean, really it's amazing. It took someone this long to come up with it, but a brilliant finish. But one of the things that I've enjoyed is when he was feuding with big show and he's got the cabinet, uh, he had, uh, what was the lady in his cabinet's name? What was her name? Amy Weber. So he's got Amy Weber. He's got Orlando Jordan. He's got the Bashams. Bashams. And they do a deal almost like, uh, they did like a tranquilizer dart to big show, a, a hilarious piece of business for SmackDown. God, it was, those were some fun times and that was, that was good shit. I, I always go back to the time that we wanted to do the, when talk about big show, wanted to do the, not the stun gun, but the laser, uh, the, the taser on big show. And he's like, well, what does that feel like? And I'm Mr. Big shot. I'm like, oh, fuck, I'll take it. So the cops set the, the taser on the lowest setting and hit me with it. And we had, I was standing on a crash pad. I went down like a ton of bricks. Big show saw that. I was like, fuck that. <laughs> taking that motherfucker. But no, those were some fun times. It was always interesting trying to come up with the next entertaining segment for John to do. Could we tase you for charity? No. No, that will never fucking happen again. That's cop coming wants to subdue my ass. All they got to do is put their hand on the taser. I'm going down. I mean, it's for charity, bro. I don't give a shit. Okay. I'll donate. (laughs) I don't know why that's funny, but it is Uh, around this time. John Cena is named the number one contender. So they start working a lot of house show tag team matches against each other with Cena teaming with big show and JBL teaming with Orlando Jordan. Of course, we're building to WrestleMania 21, which goes down April 3rd, 2005. And John Cena is going to become the world champion for the first time. And he beats JBL in the process. Uh, I guess it's worth mentioning here that even though people look back at John's time as champion and they're critical of this or that, cause you don't like the guy. He's the longest reigning champion in over 10 years at that point. He held it for 280 days. Uh, what'd you think of the decision to have John Cena be the guy to beat him? And, uh, was John cool with it? What can you tell us about that? WrestleMania 21 match. Cena was on the rise and it was going to be the crowning because John JBL, this is what I love when people talk about him and they, they say, Oh, I hate him. I hate him. I, all this stuff. Thank you. You're supposed to hate him. And even the, the people that write the sheets and all that other stuff, and thank you for hating him. Thank you for 
embracing that character enough and feeling that, you know, not getting the time or ever having the opportunity to know the human being uh, behind the character. But thank you for hating him because that just means that he did his job and we did our job. So to me, that is the, the greatest sign when the people that know everything about everything are hooked in and have the same emotions that you're looking for everyone else to have. And John had had a great run with the championship, had a shitload of heat on him throughout. And John Cena now coming up was the right guy to knock him off. And that to me made John Cena. Let's talk about the April 28th episode of SmackDown. JBL defeats Big Show, Booker T, and Kurt Angle in a four way elimination match. And this earns him a rematch for the WWE title. But he's going to lose to John Cena at Judgment Day in an I Quit match. Let's fast forward a little bit to ECW's One Night Stand. And this is not going to be comfortable for you, so I'll apologize in advance. But there's no way to tell the story without just telling the story. JBL and other SmackDown wrestlers come onto the balcony to watch this ECW one night stand show. And this is in the middle of the show and they cut a promo. Of course, the biggest of which being from JBL during Paul Heyman's promo, he tells JBL that he's the, he's only champion because triple H didn't want to work on Tuesdays. And at the end of the show, there's a big brawl in the ring between ECW and WWE guys. And during it, JBL legitimately busts up blue Manny's face. And there's a lot of heat on JBL after this Wade Keller would write the locker room sentiment seemed decidedly anti JBL quote, JBL's a dick. And he has a huge ego. A lot of people backstage enjoyed Paul putting him in his place during his promo. And another ECW wrestler says, what the fuck do you prove beating up blue Manny? JBL accompanied by Orlando Jordan did step onto the bus after the event and told a large group of ECW wrestlers that he loved the show and really appreciated what they did. Some thought it was a odd gesture, but others saw it as JBL trying to save face. In any case, JBL was consistent in saying that he absolutely loved the event and that it was his first ECW show ever. Before we talk about what happened, I want to read you what blue meanie wrote on his myspace it is 2005 after all when this happens it's no secret that bradshaw never liked me from my first day in the wwe to my last and meanie also shares that during the skirmish jbl is yelling at him about things meanie had said about him on the internet and meanie claimed that his unflattering words had all been a part of the show and Manny said in recent years that he thinks he got heat because he was on a flight and sitting first class while the rest of the guys were in the back. And he was told if this ever happens again, give your seat to a vet. And Manny said he honestly didn't know to do that. And he says he didn't know this punch was coming, but he saw JBL staring at him during the stare down. And he said two nights before at the hardcore homecoming, he was hit in the head, uh, by Sandman and he had to get eight staples in the back of his head. And he said the first time JBL hit him, he hit him right where he got the staples. So Manny turned around and JBL put a shirt over his head like a hockey punch and started throwing live rounds. Manny says he tried to grab a headlock to stop the punches and they ended up getting separated. And he says when they got backstage, JBL came over and said that Manny was talking about him on the internet. And Manny said he thinks JBL was referring to when he was released in 2000. 
he called JBL a bully. JBL in an interview with WWE.com after that said the incident with Meany had nothing to do with any old heat. I don't even know the guy. I couldn't care less about the fat little kid. On the July 4th SmackDown, Meany would pin JBL after Batista interfered. And during the match, Stevie Richards hit JBL hard as a motherfucker in the head with a chair. And in an interview afterwards, Richard said JBL had it coming. This is an incident that got a lot of attention online. And a lot of people thought the SmackDown chair shot was retribution, but boy, what a fucking weird twisted web. This was, you weren't there. You had the night off, but you certainly heard about it. Was the consensus that JBL just maybe drank too much in the balcony and let it go too far? Or what's the, what's, what's the thinking in the office? You know, well, not only was I not there that night, I wasn't there for the subsequent TVs afterwards. So I'd had that whole week off. So by the time that I even got back, it was a non-issue and everything had kind of blown over. But the scuttlebutt, I, I guess the, the rumor and innuendo was that basically they got in there and John got hit from behind, turned around, thought Meanie had sucker punched him. So he fucking went after Meanie. Uh, how any of that happened? Don't know. Don't care. Uh, it was brutal, uh, after seeing Meanie's, uh, gashes afterwards. And he apparently had been busted open by Sandman a couple days before and had a nice fresh wound there as well. So not cool. And any way you look at it and it's just, uh, it ain't fucking ballet, but I do remember seeing the chair shot like I, and even going back to this day, um, I think I saw that, that whole fight scene with JBL and Meanie maybe one time just in, in watching the show over. And I do remember the chair shot with Meanie and I remember John coming back and, and being totally cool with it. I'm like, okay, next, but shit happens. I think that the, the media and everybody else will blow it more out of proportion than the participants will. And I think JBL and Meany are cool to this day, but again, misunderstandings, people say shit, do shit and shit happens sometimes, man. It's life. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm glad that, you know, everybody's on good terms now and that everybody's sort of kissed and made up. But when you, if you were on the outside and you were a fan and you're seeing all this, and hearing all this, wouldn't it be easy to understand and sort of get with the narrative that, uh, maybe this JBL guy's a, a bully in real life. Not if I don't know him again, uh, you know, having been part of, you know, rumor, innuendo perception and speculation of things that just simply aren't true when people will give their perception of me or say things about me that have never met me, that have never spent 30 seconds even saying hello to me, or maybe they did say hello to me for five seconds when I was in the middle of something else. Or maybe, uh, th this was great. One time I, I was at an appearance and I had just gotten word that my wife was rushed into the emergency room and someone came up and wanted to take a picture and I took the picture and the guy says, he goes, well, can you smile at least? 
I said, I'm not in the mood to smile right now. And, and it actually made it onto one of your friend's dirt sheets about what an asshole I was when no one knew. Cause I remembered the situation. I remembered the whole fucking deal because of the phone call that I was on. When I got off, this guy, you know, came up. So people don't know, uh, they've never taken the time to get to know him and, and they probably never will because of the lives that, that we live, the lives that John lives. So I don't think that's fair a lot of times, but I can see where people based on the information that they have coming from these different people, also a lot of who haven't been around or who don't like him for whatever reason. Um, I can see where they can come to that conclusion, but it's not fair. JBL starts putting or accurate. JBL starts putting over the world champion Batista on a lot of house shows. And eventually they made it great American bash and JBL gets a win by DQ after Batista hit JBL with a steel chair. But of course the title won't change hands by DQ. So they do a rematch at SummerSlam. Batista gets a win there. Uh, and then JBL loses another rematch with Batista on the September 9th episode of SmackDown in a Texas bull rope match. Uh, we haven't talked about Batista on the show in a while. How did JBL like working with Batista? They actually got, man, they had some damn good matches and actually got along because they were always trying to come up with something bigger the next time and challenge themselves big time. I remember the, the, uh, the spot on the steps, that damn Batista bomb on the steps that really fucked up Layfield's back pretty damn bad. Um, but they enjoyed working with each other. Let's keep it moving here and let's talk about the September 16th episode of SmackDown. JBL actually loses to Rey Mysterio and then he hires Jillian Hall to fix his career. Uh, we haven't talked about Jillian Hall. Chat me up about her and the, uh, Beauty Mark we'll go with Jillian Hall came from OVW and she was an OVW original that really had busted her ass. All she wanted to do was be in the business and Vince was fascinated with the Austin powers, uh, the mole scene where the guy had the mole and Austin powers kept looking at the mole and mole, mole, mole and all that shit. So so what if we had a character that, that had this unsightly mole on their face and, and that's what, you know, people always want to draw attention to. And, and that was, that was the idea of a time with Jillian Hall. She had a mole and, uh, thank God we finally got it off of her. And remind everybody how you got it off of her. Boogeyman ate it. Oh, <sighs> No mercy. We see a, uh, JBL match with Rey Mysterio. Uh, JBL then starts a feud with boogeyman culminates in a match between the two, the Royal rumble boogeyman wins. Can't believe this is real at the next pay-per-view JBL beat Bobby Lashley at no way out. And then on the February 24th episode of SmackDown, this is in 2006, JBL suffers a broken hand. At the hands of Chris Benoit, a six-man tag team match. And the website announces that he's undergone successful surgery. And that sets up a rematch where JBL gets a win over Chris Benoit at WrestleMania to win the first United States championship. So kind of a cool deal here. Uh, the April 21st episode of SmackDown, JBL fires Jillian Hall 
due to a mistake she made during the JBL Benoit steel cage match from the week before. And specifically she didn't put together the appropriate celebration for him on May 23rd. Bobby Lashley wins the United States title. And then JBL goes to SmackDown GM, Teddy long telling long that he wants a rematch with Rey Mysterio for the world title. And then if he loses, he'll quit. And when he does lose the crowd at the arena began to sing a very familiar song. Na 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 na. Na 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 na. Na na na. Goodbye. Um tell us what's going on here. He's the injuries are just stacking up and he Well, it goes it goes back to the, the what I was talking the Batista bomb on the steps. Yeah. And that was the beginning of the back injury and it was a nagging back injury getting conflicting reports from different doctors at different times. So one doctor told him, you know, let's do a little treatment here, do some traction, do some different things to give him time to heal. And that was, that was the thinking at that point. And and also there were doctors telling him you can never wrestle again, or you shouldn't wrestle again. So, you know, every fighter has one last fight in them type thing. They don't want to hear that. So you do what you have to do to, to get in. But at the, at that time, that was the back injury. Well, he, he later said he didn't have a formal contract with Teddy long going into the match. So he had no intention of leaving SmackDown, but it's a storyline way to give him a chance to heal up. Uh, and then he replaced Taz as the SmackDown color commentator on the June 16th episode. Chat me up. Why is Taz out? Why is JBL in? Whose idea was that? How did it come to be? Um, I think that was, was that during the time that Taz's contract was up? That may have been it. Just that Taz's contract was coming up and hadn't renewed and looking for something for John to do. See if he could work in as a color commentator. I think that was it at the time. Uh, let's keep it moving here. I, I do want to talk about something that he wrote. Um, JBL said in a commentary on the street.com, he was retiring from in-ring competition for good. In his final column on the website, JBL wrote, I've also come to believe that you can't fight father Tom, a broken back suffered in a match in England, compounded by a herniated disc and a bulge disc finally made me realize my career as a professional wrestler was over. I since migrated to the color commentary position, much in the way Jesse Ventura did before me. Now he did pop up every now and again. Uh, for the main event of a house show over in Dublin, Ireland in late 06. And, um, JBL cut a promo on Teddy long on the December 22nd episode of SmackDown, where he was cursing out fans for cheering during the Inferno match at Armageddon five days earlier. And a year later, uh, he would announce that he's going to resume his career in response to a challenge made by Chris Jericho. And on the December 21st episode of JBL, he gave a farewell address from SmackDown officially marking his return to raw on December 31st and sometime at the beginning of 2008 is where the snot thickens. As they say, the Joey styles incident happened, and this has been much written about much like the, the blue meanie incident. And I think it helped shape the narrative that exists for John Layfield. I'll let you take it from here about what really happened with Joey Styles. I, I wasn't there. 
I was not on the flight. Wasn't there. I have no fucking idea. I've heard all the rumor and innuendo. It's just like everybody else, but I, I was not there. Have no idea. They were on their way over to tribute with the, to the troops and John had been fucking with him and Joey fired back. So that's, that's literally all I know. A lot of times on these long European trips, uh, you know, these overseas flights, we hear stories about guys, uh, maybe indulging a little too much and drugs or alcohol and things get out of control. And that's the reason we hear stories like the plane ride from hell. In your opinion, is this alcohol infused two guys fucking with each other and they go maybe a little too far? Probably so. And again, you know, like I, I say that, but, um, wasn't there have, have no idea. And both of them laughed it off. So I don't think that there was anything more to it than just that. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times that John's punched me in the mouth and vice versa. So to me, it's just another night out with Layfield. Well, yeah, we've heard your stories of him punching you in elevators and whatnot. Chat me up though. Um, you mean, even though you didn't, you weren't there, you had to be fucking with him. I mean, I've heard people call Joey style stocky Balboa because of this situation and allegedly, I guess we should catch everybody up. Some of our listeners don't know the rumor and innuendo is that Joey styles, quote unquote, knocked out JBL when JBL was bullying him allegedly and, and crossed the line and said something about Joey's wife and maybe Joey wasn't man enough or something like that. And it was maybe a little more colorful than that. And that was enough for Joey to ball up his fist and haul off and punch JBL. Now, whether or not he was knocked out is something a lot of people debate, but the idea that someone of Joey's stature stood up to someone of JBL stature, not just hierarchy in the company, but actual physical size. A lot of people were really proud of, and, um, it became a sort of famous underground wrestling story. Do I have, have the gist of that pretty much right? Uh, you know, it's funny how you have more details, never even, you know, been there and through the rumor and innuendo out there. When I spoke with both Layfield and Joey and never, ever did either one of those mention those specifics that you just said about knocking him out about his wife or any of that shit. So that's why I think the story has grown and it's taken on a life of itself. When you address the people directly, uh, you don't hear any of that shit. So again, I would, but come on, I don't know. In I, the meantime, you've been, you, I, I know you, I know you have fucked with John about, Hey boy, you fuck with me again. I'm gonna get Joey over here to whoop your ass. That happens. I mean, I've never seen it, but I just know your personality to know you. I will now. <laughs> Don't act like I just planted that seed in your head for the oh, first time. Oh, you did. I, I don't think I ever have. Well, sorry about that, John, if you're listening. JVL would go on to face Jericho at the Royal Rumble. Oh, you don't, you don't. I'm going to get a ratchet, ratchet shit for this show. That's for sure. Yeah. Both of our Twitters will blow up and, uh, our text messages even more so. Uh, JBL wins by DQ after Jericho hit him with a chair. Uh, on the February 18th edition of raw JBL interferes in the scheduled cage match between Mr. McMahon and his storyline, illegitimate son, Hornswoggle. That's a thing. Uh, after Vince whipped Hornswoggle with his belt, also a thing, uh, JBL attacked Finley from behind and handcuffed him to the top rope. And after McMahon left the ring, JBL proceeded to beat Hornswoggle 
throwing him against the sides of the cage. And JBL later revealed to McMahon that Hornswoggle was Finley's son, not McMahon's. And that set up a match between JBL and Finley at WrestleMania 24, which was the Belfast brawl and JBL one. Tell me about this shit. This is hilarious. Well, when Vince got into it, he, he just didn't feel it was really going to work with fit. And John JBL was begging to work with fit Finley. They had worked together in Germany and had a lot of respect for one another. So John was like, please give me fit. I'll show you what he can do. And he did. And they, they opened up WrestleMania and tore the friggin' house down. I thought it was, uh, one of the best damn matches that I've ever seen John have and made fit even more so. And it was a silly storyline that we finally got a match out of and could get the hell out of it. Yeah, I see that. Uh, backlash 2008 is JBL in a fatal four way for Randy Orton's WWE title. JBL is eliminated by John Cena. And that restarts the old Cena feud from a few years earlier. Cena beats JBL at Judgment Day and then at one night stand in a first blood match, which you know had everybody fired up. Uh, JBL in a one night stand show. For the next few months, he's working house shows and various Raws, not really in a significant storyline. He briefly starts a feud with CM Punk over the world title. And on the August 11th edition of Raw, JBL challenges Punk to a contest. He claims Punk would not be able to win. Uh, which is revealed to be, of course, an alcohol drinking contest where he challenged Punk to drink a shot of Jack Daniels to prove he would do anything to remain champion. And Punk refused, not wanting to risk compromising his beliefs and threw the drink in JBL's face. And that led to a match at SummerSlam. And of course, Punk won with the go to sleep. And you wind up leaving a few months later, but JBL was still in a featured role when you left. After you left, he'd beat CM Punk for the Intercontinental title to become the 10th Grand Slam champion and the 12th Triple Crown champion. He held the title for one month, losing the Intercontinental title at WrestleMania 25 against Rey Mysterio in 21 seconds. And after the match, JBL grabbed a microphone and said, I quit. And the next day, he announced his retirement on his WWE Universe blog. An interesting way to end a career. You know, you... You finally round out, you know, all the championships you've done it all now, grand slam champion, and you're going to go work one of your buddies, uh, one of your close friends who was with you when you first got over as a single star and as a champion, and you're going to drop the intercontinental title to him. And you're going to do it at WrestleMania 25. Man, if you're going to go out, go out with a bang. He did here. Did he not? Yeah, he did. He did it on his terms and he wanted to put somebody over on the way out. And that's what you should do. So it was, in my opinion, I don't think John ever should have come back uh, from the back injury, and he did, and kind of led to this, to where there was just there there was no more. He needed to retire. He needed to stop taking bumps and being in the ring. Um, so it was just time to go at that point. I mean, this is a, a weird question to ask you. I feel like I know the answer already. Uh, JBL, a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. What's your favorite JBL match or moment? If it comes well, to, to a match for me, it's Eddie Guerrero and the bloody one that you didn't like, man, that was something else. I'll, I'll never forget that match. Well, my favorite, my favorite match 
is one that no one ever saw. And it was John had been Ken Shamrock, shoot fighter, badass motherfucker, one of the toughest people alive. Ken Shamrock was in WWE and, and Bradshaw had been messing with uh, Ken Shamrock for a while. Hey, shooter boy. Hey, shooter boy. And got to the point to where Shamrock finally, when we're all out by the ring, you know, this in the afternoon, everybody's working out, doing their stuff to where Shamrock says, Layfield, come on in the ring or Bradshaw, come on in the ring. I'm going to lay here. You can put any hold on me you want. And then when they say go, we'll go. But you can, you, I'm going to lay here. I'm not going to, you can put me in any hold you want, put me in any position you want and get it locked in and then we'll go lay and Shamrock laid in the middle of the ring and Layfield got in and kind of like, you know, kicked at him a little bit and Shamrock didn't flinch, didn't move. And John gets down, he grabs an arm and tries something there, grabs a leg and he's looking around. And after about a minute and a half, just kind of walking around, he, he just looks up and says, I don't know a hold. <laughs> and we all just died. Cause he just had a clue. He says, I'm sorry, Mr. Shamrock. I, I'm sorry. And then my other one was, uh, when Ken, I mean, not Ken, but, uh, Steve Blackman, and Bradshaw got in a fight at baggage claim one day where Bradshaw had just been ribbing Blackman unmercifully to where it was somebody came by and they brushed Blackman from behind. He thought it was Bradshaw grabbing his ass and it wasn't. And Blackman went over and just started going, going to town on Bradshaw. And I had them both in like a broom closet because I had to find them and I had to reprimand them and find them. And I said, what the hell were you thinking? I said, both of you, what the fuck were you thinking? And John says, Mr. Pritchard, he hit me eight times before I even realized I was in a fight. <laughs> and everybody started laughing and they hugged and shook hands and everything was fine. But that's, you know, you hear a lot of bullshit, uh, about John. The human being is, is one of my best friends and he's a member of my family. I love him to death and he's always been great to, to my family and I, and, uh, I'm just happy to call him friend. Yeah. Listen, I, I'll be honest. I've, I've been a hook, line and sinker on all the stories. You know, I, I've, I've read stories where, uh, allegedly he would, you know, tape guys up or soap guys up and stick stuff up their ass. Or, uh, he would flush Justin Roberts passport down the toilet or, you know, he tried to make fun of Joey Styles' wife or he beat up blue me. I heard all this and I had my own preconceived notion of who he was. And then through you, I got to meet him. And he couldn't have been fucking nicer to me. And I always judge people based on how they treat my family. And they, he gave a lot of time to my daughter and a lot of time to my dad and was super cool. So I've been a John fan, even though that's not really popular to say, but I have this weird rule of, I treat people how they treat me and he's been cool to me. So, and everyone should do that. Yeah. So rather than, you know, go into it with a preconceived notion, I was just like, well, it's Bruce's friend. We'll fucking see how this goes. But he was super cool. So now we are friendly. And I mean, maybe before this show airs, he might not ever speak to me again and uh, just yell that you like donkeys or whatever he does. Well, we've got some rapid fire questions here from social media. We're going to run through these very quickly. Bruce, are you ready? Ready. Wrestling wants to know, did you guys ever consider bringing back Ron 
to feud with John for the world title. We might have discussed it, but not seriously. It wasn't something that we really delved into. Uh, Slizzard says JBL once wrestled a bear in Texas. Do you know where this bar room bear brawl? Uh, I know about it. It, uh, was during John's college days where he and his buddies got drunk and John got his ass whooped by a wrestling bear. Was that a working bear? Well, in fact, John got his ass whooped. You'd think it was a shooting bear. This might've been a shooting bear. They got shooting bears and they got working bears. Do you know why that bear beat up JBL? That bear heard what JBL said about him on the internet. That's right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, Gerald wants to know how did the heat between JBL and Vince Russo start? I'll be honest. I have no idea what he's talking about, but I guess he doesn't like JBL. I, you know what? Uh, I don't know either. Other than Russo saying to JBL one time that nobody can take you seriously with that accent. And he didn't know what to do with him because people can't relate to him being from Texas. Interesting question here from Tim Spears. What impact did the Bush presidency have on the JBL character? Well, we covered that in the show and that, and actually a lot, uh, we would take a lot of the nuances and mannerisms that president Bush would, would do if he would come out and make a speech. For example, when, when Layfield wore the, the jacket he wore, that was based on something that Bush was wearing at the time. So a little bit. Yes. Part two of Tim's question is when Bradshaw becomes JBL, it's the first time he's not presented as a badass. How does vulnerability help a character? Tremendously. Cause if you just beat everybody up, how do I ever relate to you or feel sorry for you? I, I is a baby face. I want somebody that I can help root on to win. And as a heel, I want to know he can get his ass kicked. Uh, wide man can't jump asks the JBL ever help any of the boys out with their finances. Yes. Quite a few. Uh, Jamie wants to know which persona is more like the real outside of wrestling. John Charles Layfield, APA Bradshaw or JBL. They're both as close as you're going to get, uh, JBL, probably a little bit more so. But, um, well, he's not running around with weird shit painted on his chest in real life. Right. Right. But I I think, you know, the, the real John Layfield is this highly intelligent, very intellectual, um, brilliant mind for finances. Classic wrestling polls writes who would have won in a shoot fight, JBL or Bob Holly. Holly would kill him. See, I'm gonna get a text on that one too. Roger Horton wants to know, was JBL really the bully that we hear about whenever his name is mentioned? It's hard to believe that if he was, that some of the other wrestlers never put him in his place. And again, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to that at all. That he was a bully. Was he a loud mouth and was he abrupt and all that shit? Absolutely. But no, uh, Nason wants to know who would JBL say was tougher. Him or Ron Simmons, Ron Simmons all day long, twice on Sunday. TR two wants to know what kept John loyal to WWE. Why did we never see him go to TNA or anywhere else? Is the way he's brought up and he's a loyal guy and that's just who he is. Colin wants to know has JBL ever received heat from anyone for stiffing them with the clothesline from hell, because that theme always looked brutal. 
I think the clothesline is really not that brutal. It looks brutal, which is, again, shows you how good of a worker he is. But I don't know if anybody ever really complained about it. You know, you've told us before the right way to take a DDT. What's the right way to take a clothesline from hell? Abruptly. <laughs> Brandon wants to know who were John's closest friends, quote, in the business? Probably Ron, Sim Ron Simmons, definitely. And then, uh, from there, Godfather taker, I would hope I throw myself in there. I'm glad you mentioned taker. Jeff wants to know, did JBL ever have to go to wrestlers court? Uh, JBL was an officer in wrestlers court. So he was like a Sergeant at arms. He's like the bailiff, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Amar Burton writes, we've all heard amongst the, the Hardy boys that Matt was the quote unquote brains of the operation in terms of creative input and direction. Did the APA have that kind of dynamic? And if so, who was in charge or ran lead on more creative elements? Um, John was probably more creative, but John would always defer to Ron. Garrett wants to know how much was real money. And how much was fake money at WrestleMania 21, where the money was coming down from the ceiling? It was all real money. Uh, uh, wait a minute. WrestleMania 21, it was at the Bradshaw Bills. If it was Bradshaw Bills, it was fake. But we did, uh, those were Bradshaw Bills. So how much, how much real money do you think you spent on your fake money? I have no idea yeah, when we drop, when we drop money from, from, we always dropped real money. Lots of it. Except uh, when it's Bradshaw bills. Sure. Aaron wants to know, this is a fun question. What part do you think John would say he enjoyed more his APA run with Ron Simmons or the JBL cabinet era APA era with Simmons. Uh, this is an interesting question from Jamie was JBL ever considered for an authority figure role. It seems like his personality would have been suited for a heel GM. Yeah. We talked about it from time to time, but just never pulled the trigger on it. Michael says, what was the reason we never got a JBL championship run on Monday night? Raw JBL was one, if not the top heel during his run. Why was he just kept on SmackDown? Was it just to help the younger talent like John Cena at the time? Timing more than anything. And John was identified with the brand SmackDown. So we kept him there. Well, and here's the good news. The number of collisions involving a train at a railway crossing is down 83% from its peak in the 1970s. Here's the bad news. There are still more than 2000 incidents a year. Stop trains. Can't, and you can't stop something to wrestle, man. Nearly three hours here today. Looking forward to next week. Appreciate you taking time out of your schedule today, Bruce. And I'm glad we're back in our studios this week and we sound good as new. I'm looking forward to next week and hope you are too. join us next Friday and every Friday at noon. And don't forget to get your tickets to see what is at least for now, the last foreseeable something to wrestle. It's happening at Starcast two in Las Vegas. It's Sunday. You don't want to miss it. Bruce will be there. I'll be there. Well, pretty much everyone in wrestling will be there. You never know what you can expect, but you can join us live at starcast.com. Pick up your tickets. You just need a gold bracelet. You'll get that show and two dozen others. If you can't join us, don't worry. You can enjoy live and on demand in glorious HD on any smart device or Apple TV or your computer or anywhere else at Starcast on fight. It's four days, 59 bucks. Get you all that content with unlimited replays 
and it'll be the, the first time one of our shows has been live streamed. This is going to be pretty fun, Bruce. You, you nervous, excited, anxious, scared, scared. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad that you're going to be a part of it. Looking forward to seeing everybody there. If you haven't already, check it out. Starcast.com, S-T-A-R-R-C-A-S-T.com. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Shaka Khan. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.